2: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions,
1: and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher mukigana Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Thurston Howard. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm great, Mookie. Do you have a voice to go all three hours today? I'm trying. I I took up, like I told you a couple weeks ago, that we started a new improv uh, location where I perform at an artisanal mini-golf canning factory. Artisanal mini-golf? As opposed to regular mini-golf? Did I not tell you about this? No. (laughs) It's this warehouse a couple blocks from my house, and um, amazingly, like, hundreds and hundreds of people come all the time and it's this 18 holes of mini golf. It's called Can Can Wonderland. You can look it up on uh, um, Google or Bing or Yahoo. Uh, no Lycos or web Crawler. But um, it's uh, this big space with this big mini golf thing. And then they have like old timey arcade games. When I say old timey, I mean that my friend who owns some of these games, you know, some of them are from like 1920 or the turn of the century. They're like old mechanical games and then skee-ball and then pinball games. Yeah, and I'm seeing lots of pictures of pinball here. Yeah, so there's a lot of lot of different things there, and then like really old uh, machines, and then they have a stage, and um, so we perform there on Friday nights. And so if you're in St. Paul, please come. No cover. Uh, But the thing is, it's an enormous space. It's like where you could run a wrestling show, really. And the problem with that is that you know there's no good acoustics, and so even though you're mic'd, you end up really working. I broke a sweat last night. I've broke a sweat in you know 15 years of doing improv uh at least hosting. So I was running all over the place and just trying to get the audience going and whatnot and I, I kinda blew up my voice a little bit, even though I was mic'd. So uh it's a it's an interesting gig. I'm I'm happy to be doing it. We're very thankful to uh stay in the game, but uh it's it takes a lot more work than I'm used to being in the back of a Mexican restaurant. So is that where you're doing it regularly now? Mm-hmm. Oh, every week that's one of the spots I, that we got a weekly gig there and then uh, I do some other kind of side gigs like some long form stuff over in Minneapolis so I've been doing that for a couple of weeks so I did four weeks of the long form thing and then I'm switching over to two weeks of the short form and then more back to two weeks of the long form
2: so so you're going to be blowing out your voice every Friday night from now on
1: no no the other the, the long form doesn't usually blow up my voice because that's more like an improvised monster movie and uh, that's that's a lot less work okay, okay. good news that's for where I Somonics tweaked my radio. back yeah
2: yeah yeah Okay, it's where I get hurt, not where I hurt my voice. It's where you take seven-foot bumps and whatnot. Indeed, indeed. How about you? Did you uh, wrestle this week? I did not. Uh, I heard there was a show uh, in a at a fair, basically uh, down the southern tier last night, where some of my students wrestled, and I heard good reports. But you now I've uh, I haven't wrestled probably since since last Friday when I yeah we talked about that. You know, I've just been training and uh, working and doing wrestling research. Last week we talked about two subjects.
1: We went two hours, 59 minutes, and like 28 seconds. And uh, I think it's our most listened to episode ever. It is. So we're going to stay topical. We're going to stay relevant. We're going to talk about that Young Bucks cease and desist. Uh, I'm hoping Nick and Matt, uh, discovered recently that if I tweet something out about wrestling trademarks, 800 people will try and retweet them to get them to respond to such things, mm-hmm. which uh, amused me greatl- greatly this week where I was kind of like, I think they know what's going on. You guys really don't need to keep telling them the same tweet over and over again. But uh, I'm sure that's their own problem. Talk us through the, the timeline of what has happened with this young buck cease and desist
2: two sweet suck it bullet club, all that stuff. Yeah, so the Bullet Club did a video as part of their Being or the, being the Elite series where uh, the Bullet Club went to Raw in Ontario, California on Monday, which is September 25th, and they sort of start the video off talking about, you know, Cody wants to get his Rhodes name back, and the Bucks want to get the Suckett gesture back. I don't think they were actually referring to the Click gesture, but that could be wrong. Uh, Marty Skrull wanted to get his umbrella gimmick back, which is supposedly stolen by Jack Gallagher. They're being, you know, very ironic and, you know, Facetious, if you will. Facetious. So in, in the in the middle of the video there's also a ad read from the High Spots Wrestling Network for what it's What worth. is you. It didn't surprise me, but it was um it's interesting that they're they're getting whatever monetization they can get from YouTube, if any, but it's interesting that they're getting, you know, an ad read from High Spots. So they're Don't they do the um don't they do like the shoot interviews after P W G sometimes with like meltzer and people? Yes.
1: Okay, so and it doesn't that appear on high spots? Yep. Okay, so that might be another connection there is is it's it's kind of money in their pocket, right? If people go to high spots and start using that promotion because they do have some content on there.
2: Mm -hmm. I just thought that was evidence of I mean, look at how these guys are marketing themselves and getting getting themselves to make money, uh, not just by wrestling, not just by selling merchandise. But look, they've got ad revenue. Because they've got a sponsor on one of their, their videos, which they could have easily just not created this being the Elite Series and not gotten that ad revenue. But anyway.
1: Well, speaking of ad revenue, wasn't it
2: Coffee Day yesterday, International Coffee Day? It, it was International Coffee Day. And Stephanie McMahon got a personal note from Starbucks while I was sitting there at my uh, 9-to-5 day job sucking on Folgers. You're saying that Larry insulting. Larry Starbucks himself
1: sent Stephanie McMahon, Helmsy, a note? It could have been. I don't remember who signed it. Wow, that's pretty exciting. Big, big big Larry getting into the action. Um, yes, we, we are looking for sponsors on WrestleLomics Radio. And when we're going through various uh, choices for sponsors, I think I, I called out that I would love to be sponsored by a K-Cup company of some sort, because uh, we do usually drink coffee uh, when we're uh, recording these shows on Saturday mornings. I'm drinking some uh, plantation mint tea this morning just to, oh. to soothe my my ailing voice. But normally it would be coffee. Mm-hmm. I, I've got the Wegman's coffee today. I would, um, I would, I would kill to be sponsored by Wegman's. That would make me the happiest man on earth. If uh, Danny Wegman's a uh, trustee of yeah. my my alma mater uh, was in fact a listening here, uh, let me know. Get in touch. Is Danny Wegmans still alive?
2: He, well, uh, no, I, I, I don't know.
1: I think Danny's gone, but one of his sons is now the um, uh, on the board of board of uh, not directors, maybe the board of trustees or whatever for the University of Rochester.
2: We'll do our uh, supermarket uh, economics episode maybe next week. Yes. But uh, on this Bullet Club episode, on this being yeah, the elite, I'm sorry, being the elite. So, episode. so, so an important note that a, a lot of people, I think, including Dave Meltzer, have pointed out, there's a, a moment in the video where they're, okay, earlier they're hanging out with fans and whatnot, but then they talk to this one fan who admits to them that they, he, he's got free tickets to Raw. That's how he's going to Raw. He didn't pay for a ticket. He's got a free ticket. And the idea is that WWE would be really bothered by that. They don't want it they don't want their show to be known as something that people are getting free tickets to well and moreover a lot of people don't remember the
1: lawsuits of the 90s between wcw and wwf over the dx skit that they're parodying but this became part of the legal record where there was a whole issue there where if you read the the excerpt testimony of the well, not testimony, but the excerpt legal filing, it talks about how this was used as kind of a disparaging uh, gesture by WWF on WCW, saying that in the parlance of professional wrestling, giving away free tickets was akin to saying that the product was not popular and was failing and all this other stuff. And so this was actually part of the legal filing, um, specifically when they were fighting over the rights. And it was kind of the combination of all the different... um, back-and-forth shots that WCW and WWF were doing to each other on kind of Lantham Act, trademark infringement, character so, infringement. So I,
2: I haven't watched the DX Invasion angle in a while. Is there actually a moment in the DX Invasion angle in, like, 1998, right? Is, is there actually a moment where they go up to a WCW fan and a WCW fan tells them they he got free tickets? My understanding is that they show footage of
1: a different billboard that basically is, like, free tickets available or something like that. Oh, that and, sounds familiar. And then they basically were accused of essentially editing in something that was completely untrue. And then I, I think they did find some people to be like, are you paying to go to the show? And they're like, no, these were free. They're handing them out or something like that. I haven't watched it recently either, so I could be wrong on that. But but I just want to bring up the fact that this became a legal point in this other argument. So as, as much as it seems to be a small little jibe and a parody of the original thing – it's also important to point out that that parody ended up costing a lot of legal dollars in uh, man hours spent to uh, fight this lawsuit back and forth.
2: So the DX invasion angle itself cost WF
1: money. It was yes, I mean uh, undoubtedly because it basically it was a legal argument between the two of them, and I think essentially it ended in a stalemate where they were basically told to both pay their own legal bills. Okay.
2: So on, I believe it is Wednesday, the twenty seventh. Was that was that a Wednesday? Um, mm-hmm. it was. Ryan Satin from Pro Wrestling Sheet put out a report saying that the, that WWE had sent the Young Bucks an actual cease and desist. Uh, up to this point, it's just been ironic fun games, but it looks like WWE has sent the Young Bucks an actual cease and desist, telling them to stop using the too sweet gesture, at least on their t-shirts, right? That's what it sounds like. And so if we go to um, Satin's uh,
1: piece here, I'm just clicking on it now. Uh, we we know Meltzer wrote about it in the Observer this week. Um he said, uh, they, they confirmed that they reached out to them and said that they could be sued for $150,000 in damages and more. And they want an agreement saying they won't use WWIP, uh, in writing. And then I think Dave wrote a little bit more about it in, in his observer that came out on Thursday. But, uh. There's no denying that they got the letter. I think everyone agrees that, that WWE sometimes sends out these strongly worded legal letters. And just for people asking me, oh, where's the filing? Where's this or that? There is no filing. You you know, it's just like a letter you'd send on the mail to anyone else. If someone chooses to put it online, then sure, yeah, you can see that. And uh, I think we even might have been able to dig up another example of WWE sending a very similar message to someone. But Yeah, uh, so
2: so in we were just talking about indie wrestling that I'm involved in. So I've been more or less running the, the website and the social media for a Promotion Call Empire State Wrestling for several years and there's been a couple times where I guess we were using a, a photo that WWE actually owned and they sent us or at least they claimed to own and they sent us cease and desist notices that seemed very dramatic and I would imagine I would imagine the Young Bucks got a very similar email with a few variables changed uh, as the same email that we got where it, it and I shared that with you uh, I think last night where it, where it makes the same threat, if that's the right word, basically saying we're going to, you know, we're entitled to all profits and uh, we're going to charge you $150,000 per work and all that. And I think it's it's even citing a law in the sense of
1: saying because we own this IP, according to this law, we can request up to right. damages. You know, so it's not like they're just choosing hundred fifty thousand because they think right. it's going to bankrupt someone. It's it's like saying when you illegally copyright uh, copy a DVD or something in the beginning, it has that FBI piracy warning and it says you know you can be charged fines up to
2: quarter of a million dollars or whatever. Yeah. So, so I just I think some fans have heard that one hundred fifty dollar. Yeah, a number and hundred fifty thousand dollars 150 thousand dollar number and people have thought well oh they're they, they're gonna go after the, the young bucks and they decide that they want to get them for that much money that's just that's I believe that, that's yeah. that, that's just standard that's just standard to what they put in those statements that they send out probably I would think they send out multiples of those every week. Did they end up coming back to you on that Jim Duggan event? No, no, uh, nobody uh, (laughs) ever followed up, no. And I think we might have changed it, but we didn't send – I don't know that we sent them an email back saying – because they say in the statement, we want you to tell us in writing that you're not going to do this anymore. Email is sufficient. I don't know if we ever got back to them. We may or may not have changed the photo, um, but – you know, yeah, strongly. Nobody worded, ever followed up with us. Yeah, strongly worded legal
1: letters are exactly that. They're strongly worded legal letters, and on the basis of things, you can use them probably to set a evidence trail of you know communication between you and someone else. But I don't believe they have any bearing on actual penalties because you know you're not filing it with a government agency to do that. I'm you know we've seen actually a lot of these strongly worded legal letters show up as correspondence and exhibits in. Filings after they've come out, but um a lot of them don't. You know, there's obviously a lot of communication uh that we see. Uh I've seen examples, you know, from the CTE case and the royalties lawsuit where, you know, WWE lawyers will trade emails or or written letters with people on these subjects. So it's 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 a threat for sure. And it's saying that we might institute legal action, but 99% of the time it's just a really cheap way of getting people to just change their action and scare them into maybe uh, uh, going into a direction that then you don't have to actually invoke any law because the the process of actually invoking laws is, is going to be rather cumbersome and long and, and painful and expensive. So it's much cheaper for every in-house counsel to just write a, a strongly worded letter, probably a, a, a template of a strongly worded letter since I'm imagining the letter that ESW got is very similar to the one the Young Bucks got. And yeah. what was probably the most interesting part of that though is a... Um, why was WWE irked this time? Well, it could be, and according to Melter, it was because of the free tickets claim that they're right now. They're really sensitive on this this uh, claim. I think that was his speculation. That's his speculation. That was, yes, yeah, we don't know that for a fact. So his his speculation is that they're really sensitive about attendance numbers, and they're t- sensitive about being the word
2: being out there that they're not doing well in selling tickets. Yeah. The, but what we did hear Dave say before the season's assist news came out that they were bothered by. Uh, the free ticket thing. So there's that. The second one was WWE actually talked about, or not that they were. I'm sorry, not that they were bothered by the free ticket thing, but that they were upset about the angle in in some sense. That the attention the angle got, uh, yeah. for sure. We we heard. We, I think we heard Dave say that. WWE was furious or at least, you know, bothered by it. And I think maybe people like Robert were questioning that or something. So I, so what, what IP are they infringing on is
1: I think one of the biggest questions everybody was asking about, you know, are you really now saying that every time I do a YouTube video and I do the suck it gesture or do the too sweet gesture, that would be enough for WWE to send a takedown notice or an IP violation notice. And so what a lot of people are suggesting is that there's kind of two different sides here. There's the Trademark, and there's the copyright side. On the trademark side, they did attempt to trademark the two Sweet gesture. And if you go to the actual trademark and you, you look through it, it's basically saying it's the, the uh, second finger and the pinky finger straight up. It's the middle <laughs> two fingers straight out, and then it's the thumb touching the end of those middle two fingers. So I know a lot of people have compared it to, like, the devil horns. And technically, I think the devil horns, you would tuck those middle two fingers underneath the thumb. So it would be a little bit different.
2: But um, uh, that was the click gesture. Did, didn't somebody try to – some rock star try to, to trademark the devil horns or something like that? Yes. So uh, Gene Simmons uh,
1: recently okay. did try to, to trademark the devil horns. It's really funny. If you look at the, the trademark application, um, the specimen that he submitted was him and Dave Grohl. For all things, just like randomly, is a picture of him giving the devil horns while standing next to Dave Grohl. And if you look, Gene Simmons actually has a long history of trying to trademark lots of things that the, the office has either rejected or he never bothered to follow through on. Things like uh, Gene's groupie girls or – one was my favorite. was It was called just bikini car wash. And it was this like long thing from the, uh, pa- the, the trademark attorney being like, is this going to actually include a, quote, bikini car wash? End quote. And uh, that one never really went anywhere either. But uh, yeah, Gene Simmons uh, recently got turned down for, for doing that one and just kind of abandoned it as far as I can tell. Um, but I know there was a lot of negative press around that. So WWE tried in March of 2015 to trademark this gesture. And essentially what what they do when you do this is that the examiners look for marks that are either the exact same. So you can't trademark You know, Broken Matt, if Broken Matt Hardy is already in the system, and then they they will look for things that are similar and would have a likelihood of confusion because that's the entire point of a trademark is that it's supposed to avoid confusing people in the marketplace by thinking they're getting one product. And in fact, they're getting a different product. So. They, when they had cited the uh, likelihood of confusion, which was the tweet that I put out where I said, essentially, the first one they showed was the Longhorns at uh, University of Texas, Austin, saying, you know, here's a prior use. And then they showed another one, which was kind of like the two sweet gesture, except for imagine like an eyeball in the middle of the palm of the hand that, you know, some other company had done. And a lot of other people have pointed out that I think NC State. Um, might already also have a similar trademark, and that when the trademark attorney, you know, said that the, here's a likelihood of confusion, I don't know if they have to be um, absolutely exhaustive in terms of saying here's every trademark that you're infringing on. They just have to show there's at least one. So they showed a couple examples to say here's a couple examples, and in the end, WWE didn't respond essentially to that to that uh, challenge, and they they essentially abandoned the trademark. So. The trademark filing never was. They tried to trademark it, but they never went through and finished it. So they never received the trademark for it. And it was just funny when I put out that tweet. You know how many people you know brought up the NC State thing, brought up the Longhorns, even Survival Tobita, uh, the pro wrestler from Japan who fights. You know is a is a rock and roller who fights space monsters immediately your, your personal favorite wrestler, by my the way. personal favorite wrestler immediately tweeted me. And and he only tweets like me, like twice a year when I say like, I wish it was my birthday and survival to would congratulate me. Aww. And like this. And he basically said, I, I wonder if Dick Murdoch and Stan Hansen are trying to get some royalties off the click thing for the longhorns that, you know, he immediately yeah, recognized. Wow. So that, nice. that, that really amused me that even survival to just showed up out of nowhere and recognized it. Um, What I did notice as well, and I got to credit Abby online um, on Twitter. I don't know her full name, but uh, uh, she was looking at some copyright stuff, and she pointed out, well, there is a copyright for something called click hand gesture or click hand design. But unfortunately, we can't see what the 2D artwork that they used in that copyright filing is. But it's right before they filed for the Click Rules DVD in 2015 and was released – And all over that package is this artwork where it says, you know, the click rules. And it's it's literally if you look at the trademark filing and then you look at the picture that's on the click rules DVD, it's almost the exact same drawing. It's just been colorized. So they do have a copyright on something called the click hand design 2D artwork and they have the copyright on the video disc for click rules. And so. I'm not surprised if actually in the Young Bucks letter, they're being asked, they're being told that they're infringing on the trademark on their t shirts that they're selling, not on the YouTube yeah. video, but rather on the t shirts. Or if it is on the YouTube video, they're using some kind of thing from the copyright of the the video disc but i'm guessing it's a lot more it's actually on the t-shirts because they're monetizing it and specifically i believe that the the strongly worded legal letter from wwe says something about like we want to take the profits from what you're making on this and i assume a lot of those profits are coming from
2: t-shirt profits yeah and then young books did remove any t-shirts that they had that had the too sweet gesture on them so i i I feel that this is probably they're going to have to not sell t-shirts that have the too sweet gesture on them or say too sweet on them. But I would be surprised if the young books actually can't go on ring of honor TV or go on a new Japan show and still do the gesture. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I would agree. I I think it, it would be next to impossible unless WWE would have put out one of these character trademark infringement cases where they're saying that basically you're infringing on my character and you're making people think that this character is associated with my IP And that I think would be a lot harder because I don't think they have – I mean they obviously have documented characters that use these hand signals, but they would have to then go through the whole fight of trying to prove that here's our prior use of this. Here's our example of the footage, and that would be a really long, uh, arduous thing. The other thing I'd say is that the Young Bucks themselves probably didn't remove a thing. Don't the Young Bucks use like Pro Shirt, Pro Wrestling Tees or
2: one of these companies to sell their T-shirts? They, they use ProWrestlingTees.com and, and youngbucksmerch.com.
1: Okay. So maybe young Bucks merch, but I would almost guess. I bet well, actually I, I take that back because I, I do remember the young bucks were for a while they were actually like personally, you know, packaging up t-shirts and sending them out. But what my point is there's other companies involved here and they are probably the ones that are really Worried about this more than anyone is that, you know, Young Bucks might choose, hey, we're going to fight it, we're not going to fight it. But the company that's selling their merchandise and then cutting them a royalty check might just say, you know what, I have all these other people in the store. And if WWE comes down on me like a ton of bricks, there's all this other merchandise that is probably shady. When it comes questionable, and then next thing I need is for them to come up with a hundred examples of why they're taking off Bull James's gear or some other, you know, small indie wrestler's gear because it looks a little too much like some other WWE thing.
2: So I why so so and Young Bucks sell t-shirts at Hot Topic, by the way, but none of the t-shirts that they actually carry at Hot Topic are concerned with this. There's no Too Sweet t-shirts being sold at Hot Topic, which brings up the really interesting question of
1: why. WWE chose now, and I personally think, yeah, the being the elite video probably irked them, but I think the hot topic deal might also be um, one of the reasons that they made the decision to do this. Which is, I think WWE, I'm, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm inferring here, I think someone at WWE believes the Young Bucks are infringing on their IP, but I also think WWE is annoyed that the hot topic deal is an example of a pro wrestling deal in mainstream media in the marketplace, that doesn't benefit WWE. And I think that bothers them. Is because, I mean, I even heard, we've heard those rumors that, like, even the Hot Topic people at one point thought they might be dealing with WWE and then kind of realized they weren't. Like, like they kind of thought Bullet Club was a WWE thing. Because you see so many Bullet Club shirts at a WWE event. And, you know, who knows? I think there was some story that, like, the Hot Topic people were at, you know, WrestleMania or something, and then they became convinced, like, oh, this is a hot thing, we should get in on it. And then they were surprised to discover this is not actually related to WWE, even though all these people are at WrestleMania and wrestling events in WrestleMania weekend. So I, I do think there's that element of it, which is WWE is probably a little annoyed that it's so popular. I think it's interesting that Rick and Morty did, in fact, um, apparently someone at, at the IP holders, you know, at Adult Swim or something, have apparently challenged the Young Bucks for the T-shirt they made that basically mimicked the – uh, the writing style of Rick and Morty. So it says Nick and Nick and Maddie. But it looks I mean, it's literally when you put them side by side, it's it's pretty damning in terms of it's very similar. And then it has the same kind of portal gun uh, aspect where the portal and then it has the two of them jumping out. And the difference being that Nick and uh, Matt are kind of making the two sweet gestures on that shirt,
2: aren't they? They do. They do appear to be making the too sweet gesture.
1: So I I think that's another reason that they might have wanted to back off that shirt is because they are making the too sweet gesture and they're being challenged by someone else. Now, I think it falls under parody very clearly to me um, that, you know, they're doing a knockoff of Rick and Morty. Now, I do also think that Hot Topic might be annoyed at having a knockoff of their own shirt in the same store. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I actually, I take it back. I don't know if that was, was, do you know if that, um, that Nick and Morty shirt was in fact sold at hot topic? I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I would have to check too, because that would be the other thing I'd be really curious is if the young buck shirt was actually sold at hot topic. Cause I thought only the, the, um, uh, the bullet club shirts were, but I don't remember now. I actually went
2: both rich. Kreich yeah, and I, I went to a Hot Topic a couple weeks ago too. Went but to a I Hot Topic remember. to look
1: at all the yeah. different shirts, and I do remember there being a lot of Rick and Morty shirts there. So that's the other piece of it is if they were selling it at Hot Topic, that would annoy them to see you know have that kind of knockoff merchandise. Because of course, if you make a exclusive merchandise deal with someone, you don't want some other person in that same store who's making you know parody knockoff shirts of your shirt to also be getting the merchandise money. And to be possibly you know confusing the marketplace, but again, strongly worded legal letters you know are, are they necessarily um, actions no, but they' they 're just saying that they 're threatening damages and, and you know the safest course of action for a small uh, indie wrestler is a lot of times just to c- cave in and change the
2: one thing and then try to make the person kind of go away and leave us alone yeah you see one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and that can be pretty intimidating to you know, to somebody who's not making millions and millions of dollars a year. Um, but I think the one thing we should be clear about or at least cast doubt on is I think a lot of fans have probably got the conception that they're trying to tell the Young Bucks to stop using the gesture, and I don't think that that's going to gonna happen. They're telling the Young Bucks to stop using the gesture on their merchandise that they're selling, and I don't think there's going to be as, as much of a way for them to get the Young Bucks to stop using the too sweet gesture.
1: And to me, the the probably the case history that's most relevant to this that I'm surprised I didn't think about this sooner is DDP's hand gesture, that little triangle, you know, the diamond cutter bang. because the bang, because Jay-Z also kind of claims that hand gesture. And they went back and forth and back and forth for years on trademarks. And I know that. yeah, yeah, they they both challenged kind of for the ownership and the rights to use that hand gesture. For years and years. And so I should have thought of this sooner. But that's a really good example of, you know, people saying, here's a hand gesture. Here's me merchandising that hand gesture and putting it on T-shirts and things. Here's me challenging other people. Here's me saying I have prior use on this because here's me doing it in wrestling. And that went back and forth and back and forth for years between DDP and and Jay-Z's estates and possibly even a third estate. Um, and I don't. And was there any resolution? I don't, anybody... I don't think in the end DDP was ever barred from using it was kind of where they landed. I think it landed on one of these kind of you can't claim ownership of it, but I can't be stopped from using it. So it's kind of one of these like nobody gets it because um, we can all challenge each other or we can all agree that, you know, no one has sole ownership of this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same way that, you know, a lot of a lot of things are kind of in that public domain where. No one, one person can be like I have the exclusive rights to this, but at the same time, no one else can infringe or stop you from using it.
2: Yeah. So, and the young books have already capitalized on this, and they put out yesterday, Friday, a cease and, and desist shirt.
1: Yes, where they blurred out where it looks like they're doing the two sweet gestures and whatnot. Censored,
2: yeah, the block text that says "censored" right over their hands where they're doing the gesture.
1: And I got to say, you know, for you know, they're the ICP of twenty tens. You know, as much as no one wants to hear that, they they are brilliant marketers who are able to connect with a, a a group of people and essentially get them to buy a lot of merchandise and engage in them and make them seem like a big deal to a, a larger group of people than they really are.
2: You know, what so you're saying is hardcore wrestling fans are eventually going to be investigated by the FBI as a potential organized crime group. Right? Well, I'm saying the being the elite sounds a lot like
1: they're elite what? Elite hit squad and elite uh elite group of spies you know they have they have uh, villains in their group super villains perhaps there's a lot of there's a lot
2: of questions out there yeah, so yeah club, uh, an organized crime unit
1: but yeah that i mean honestly that's what i see it as is very similar to it was something that is a very small percentage of the u.s population would actually know who they are and what they're doing but they're in the right place to talk to the youth and to merchandise themselves well, and to make an impact to people that are much bigger than them that uh, aren't really quite sure how to turn what they do into money in their pocket. So the young bucks have done a good job making money for themselves, but then when WWE sees it, it's a, it's kind of you know a challenge to them <laughs> of like you know what is it that these guys are doing and how can we get in on it in the right way. I do think people at WWE, at least some of the people, some lawyer thinks that they're infringing on their IP. I don't think this is like a Vince McMahon vendetta. I think there's someone who legitimately thinks it's true. I also think that there are times that, you know, the button gets pushed and it runs up the flagpole a lot stronger than another time. And I think when you have a high selling T-shirt at a national uh, chain and you're all over television and and you're, you know, kind of
2: rubbing it in the face of this company, it's not surprising that they're going to fire back, especially if it's a cheap, strongly worded legal letter. Yeah, just based on the emails that we've gotten, you know, and as I said, the, the ESW's gotten, I would think they have somebody who's looking around and hunting for these things, doing doing some kind of search system to find, you know, where is our IP being used by others?
1: Oh, they, they have a lot. I mean, they've actually talked a lot about how... Um... When you're searching for WWE um, PDFs on the web, uh, which is something I've done quite extensively, looking for legal filings and legal government documents and things of that nature, one thing you come across is a lot of IP law and um, services operators. So like companies that basically sell the service of we will protect your IP by going out on the web and searching for people that are infringing on it and then trying to you know, shut them down. And so, for years, you know, WWE tried to handle a lot of like the eBay stuff in house, and eventually they they took to basically no, let's let's outsource a lot of this and get reports from people every day saying who are all the violators. And so, you know, how you can look at those uh, DMCA takedown requests, and it was a big um, ordeal when um, Senior Larioto and people got knocked off of uh, Twitter for their wrestling gifts. Yeah. and it was for the 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 you know infringing on on copyrights there's it wasn't actually WWE or UFC i believe that was uh making those requests it was third parties that WWE and UFC have hired to basically go out and try to do that sort of thing and um, you can always argue, are they being too litigious? Are they being too you know, granular? Are they, is it right to take down somebody's fan art because it infringes on it? But uh, a lot of times it's not even WWE themselves that is doing it. It's, it's third parties that they've hired. And I found a lot of like legal articles – not legal articles but like sales articles saying, you know, I'm here at WWIP and I hired this company and I think it's great how much work they've done and try to protect our assets and our IP. Because the other problem is if you don't protect your IP – you always run the risk of basically people trying to use that as an excuse for why they can get away with infringing on it.
2: Um, and I will say that the email that I've shared with you that W sent to ESW was not signed by a third party, but was signed by somebody from, from Stanford.
1: Yes, and uh, I, I will say this. A lot of times I don't think that the third party is, is sending the emails. I think they're flagging the violations, and then they send them back to WWE and WWE and House sends them out. Okay. Because because the third party probably doesn't even have the rights to challenge you on it It has to come from the, the rights holder So it, it makes sense I, th- I just mean the reason it got, viol- it got flagged I really doubt someone at WWE searched for it I'm guessing some other service found it their way And then it was flagged, sent to them, and then they
2: responded In the case of WWE it, I'm sorry, in the case of Young Bucks It could very well have been the, been the case that They did this raw invasion angle well, what can we poke them on? What can we, what are they doing that we can bother them with? You
1: know, and we have no we have no idea of whether this is the first time or not that they've ever been, you know, complained about the too sweet gesture. We assume that it's the first time, but that might not be true. It's always possible that there's other times that they've been kind of communicated with to say, hey, we don't like that you're doing this, yeah. formal or informal. Because, um, you know, it, pro wrestling tees, I'm positive has gotten a lot of takedown notices in the past because I remember there was that time that, you know, Steve Austin had a bunch of gear on there. I think it was. And then it it mysteriously went down. And the reason was they claimed that some of it was infringing on WWE IP. So I, I do think certain, you know, mega stores probably get a lot of attention from them because they know that those are places that are most likely to have, um, a lot of people buying things and a lot of violations going on. Yeah. So that's our take on the young bucks thing. Um, Will they be able to use the 2 sweet gesture in videos and whatnot? Yes. Will they be able to use it on live pay-per-views? Probably. Will they be able to use them on merchandising? I think they will avoid putting it on merchandising unless they themselves are either merchandising it not in this country. So if you're doing it in Japan, I don't think you would have a problem. Or if you are, um, or if you're uh, taking the risk yourself, you know, if, if it's not going through a third party distributor of some kind. I could certainly see them trying to do it, but I also don't think they think it's worth the risk. You know, like selling a PWG only T-shirt for a weekend um, just seems to me like it's going to scream out a problem down the line for them. But they could continue to do these censored versions. No reason not. I mean, it, it, it would be so petty and ridiculous to try to argue why you're doing that, especially when I think it's already a, uh, a, a dubious case. Because I think they could fight this and they could even possibly win it. Already, so the, the bucks. You mean the bucks? Yeah. yeah, I don't think it would be easy, quick, simple. But you know, if if they were to continue to be challenged on the the censored one, I think they would have a pretty clear case. Um, again, I'm not a lawyer, so hey, what do I know? But that's that's my my uneducated educated take. Want to talk about W. E. Attendance? I do because we were talking about the the empty house comments from being the elite, and that seemed to rub the wrong way. Uh, WWE. And so uh, the question that you and I had said is, is do we have any hard data on what WWE attendance numbers are out there? Uh, You mentioned, you know, the frightening images that are shared on Twitter. And then there's some people that will respond with, well, if you take a picture before the taping starts, of course, it looks
2: terrible. Um, Yeah. And there's pictures out there, though, of they've got the looks like there was a SmackDown taping where they had most of the entire hard cam side uh, draped off. There's some other pictures of for Raw and SmackDown. This is mainly TV tapings we're seeing these images come out after. You know, we're, we're even that Las Vegas taping of SmackDown, which included the Mae Young Classic final. I think there were images or at least reports that all oh, the attendance was was kind of weak, 4,000 or so. I think we talked about it at the time, and uh, and there's been other Raw tapings that it looked like they've got a weaker attendance than you would expect from a Raw taping. Um, so, with all this. Frightening imagery and there's a little bit of this hysteria going on about well is, is WWE attendance falling? You know what, what's wrong? Is it is it because of Jinder Mahal? Is it is SmackDown being affected worse than Raw? You know what's going on? And I think this is something that I may have talked about before. Is, is that wrestling fans I think want to have some sort of justice. They want, they they don't like and I I would agree with them. They don't like the way the Jinder Mahal title reign is going. So there must be some sort of economic punishment. Uh, that's being instilled on WWE to tell them that this is a bad idea, um, but I don't see a ton of strong evidence for that. The attendance for SmackDown uh, in September is a bit down, and we can make an argument about why it's down and, how, and why it should be higher. But first, I went through just to explain what I did to try to find out what's going on here. I went. Well, let's, th- let's let's flip the script. <laughs> okay.
1: We we often we often do methodology detail and
2: then conclusion. Let's start with conclusion and then go back to methodology. So what I found was in September 2017, average attendance for a SmackDown taping is 3,900. And if you compare that, I compared all these attendances to, I looked at, I went by each month and I looked at each month for the last uh, four years, including this year. So it's 2014, 15, 16, 17. And if you compare September's SmackDown TV taping attendance to the past three years, it's 3,900 this year compared to 5,900 last year. That's down 2,000. And thats that, that doesn't look like a big drop in isolation. If you go back to the two prior years, though, you can go back to 2014, and the average attendance for a SmackDown taping was a little bit lower at 3,700. So, and the year like, in between is 4,500, right? Right. In 2015, it's 4,500. You can make the argument that well, SmackDown's got an exclusive roster now. SmackDown's got exclusive storylines now. In 2014, 2015, SmackDown was just the clear B show where you saw all the same talent. It was just sort of recycled. It was a very missable show. And now you've got separate talent. And If you miss out on SmackDown, you're going to miss out basically on half of what WWE's doing. So you can make the argument that now, because of this brand split, that, that attendance should still be as strong as it was last year at around 5,900, and it is down 2,000 from that. Uh, and And
1: you... Bring a, out a very important date. You say May 21st, Jinder wins the WWE title. August
2: 21st, Cena leaves SmackDown and joins Raw. Yeah. So those are the two events of note that you would point to to say if if attendance has fallen, why is it fallen? It could it be because Jinder Mahal is is such a poor champion? He's been the champion since May 21st. So we should consider that when we're looking at this. And then Cena left SmackDown and went to Raw the day after SummerSlam. That was August 21st. So we could look. From that moment forward, to see if there's any effect that's noticeable and jumps out,
1: and and that that would probably be my uh, hypothesis is that we are not in an era where the champion drives the seat buying behavior nearly as much as the star power on the show does. So if you know you're going to get Randy Orton and Cena and you know Kevin Owens on a show, that's worth one thing versus if you know that you're going to get not Cena and just Jinder and Baron Corbin on a show, that's another thing. And so I don't even know if it matters who's holding the belt as much as, you know, WWE fans might be annoyed to watch as much as it matters when the true star power draws are or are not on a show. I think
2: it really makes a big difference for selling those tickets. And if you look at August's average, which was 7,500, and you compare that to September's average of 3,900. That does look like a substantial drop. But on the other hand, and this is something that Road Dogg brought up, I believe on Twitter, is that yeah, September it sounds like an excuse, but yeah, September the falls is a tougher season, a tougher month for WWE. And there, and looking at the monthly averages, there does seem to be something to that. Oh, it but always again, it always drops in September. There's no doubt about that. But they also run very similar
1: buildings usually year over year, and so. It's it's always the case that I think it's very fair usually to compare year over year month over month because Usually you're in the same thing. You have the same competition Football doesn't randomly decide one year to start in June and one year to
2: start in September um, and The other conclusion I would make we were I looked at raw TV attendance also in raw TV attendance for September is 7,000 on average and that's compared to the previous year 7100 Year before that 7200 the year before that, that 8300 in September so, and, and I think a lot of this, too, says that,
1: you know, the bloom is off the rose for SmackDown a lot of years in the fall. Historically, we have seen the fall be a really tough time for SmackDown. And once they went to a, a dedicated, a, a unique brand split, they got a little pump last year from it. And they actually did much better in the fall. And that was kind of, I think, a feather in their cap to
2: prove why the brand split made a lot of sense for them. Yeah. But SmackDown actually did worse in the in August of 2006 than it did and that that's the first full month with the brand split we're talking august 2016 the first full month that smackdown's got a brand split Attendance average attendance was 5,500 compared to 6,000 the previous year and it was up this year compared to the previous year 7,500 in august 2017 this is a you know the month where cena's there for most of the month but jinder mahal is you know is is a champion for the entire month and attendance was up
1: So from from a conclusion standpoint, it sounds like to me what you're saying is that Ginger's title reign is not the thing is probably not the driver for decimating SmackDown attendance because it doesn't correlate very well with when attendance
2: is dropping rather losing Cena probably is. Right. Unless you could, I guess you can make the argument that, well, it wasn't as bad in, say, June, July, maybe even August, because people weren't as sick yet of Jinder Mahal as champion. You can make the argument that by September and combine that with the Cena leaving, now people are super disgruntled with SmackDown. But I think we have to see how October goes. I don't see this as an outstanding bad thing until we see attendance worsen going through the fall. And we also see things like when Vince McMahon came back to television for SmackDown, they had right. great ratings, right? Took a look, I don't know which episode off the top of my head Vince McMahon was on, but I, I took a look at TV ratings also, actually TV viewership for both Raw and SmackDown, because I think part of this narrative is that, oh my God, attendance is going down and ratings must be going down too. And I took a look at uh, TV ratings this year for both Raw and SmackDown and compared them to the same period of the previous year is about up half the time. Actually yeah, it was down. This, it,
1: it was the second week of September, which I think on your graph is the highest viewership week for all of
2: SmackDown in many weeks. Right. So the the past four weeks of SmackDown, just in viewership, not not in TV ratings. And remember, if you look at TV ratings, TV ratings should be better as far as adjusting for cord cutting and things like that. So this is just raw viewership of everybody who's watching over the age of two. And the viewership is up the past four consecutive weeks versus last year which if you could consider things that i've been arguing like you know there's all these time suckers that are making people watch tv less and young people are watching tv less i would expect tv ratings based on that uh, idea to be down year over year but tv ratings tv viewership is not down year over year at least in the last four weeks
1: and and i think it's really easy to Say Okay, Ginder's the champion. People are tuning out. But the reality is Jinder as champion is not even the focal point of this month's show, right? It, the Kevin Owens storyline is a much bigger point Shane. of the show with Shane and whatnot. So it, it, a lot of it is going to be story star driven. And the belts are just a prop that we use in those stories and stars making. Now, you can argue that's not the way you should book your territory.
2: I, I'm fine with that. But yeah, and, and and I would add, you can make the argument that if, if they had a stronger champion, if gender was booked differently or somebody else was booked as champion, maybe TV ratings and attendance would be up even higher than they are. Sure. And I think you can also argue the, the counter
1: of things like, is Nakamura an enormous star? And the answer would probably be, he's probably a guy in the mix, just like everyone else on SmackDown. He probably is better than, you know, Mojo Raleigh, but he's still probably not at the level of a Randy
2: Orton or a uh, even a Shane McMahon. Shinsuke Nakamura is somebody who I, I argued before he was on the main roster, could be somebody that makes a real difference to their business. But the way they've booked him, I, mean, I just think it's unbelievable how they've booked him against, you know, his first feuds have been with Dolph Ziggler, Baron Corbin, and Jinder Mahal who are three people who you couldn't have picked three people, I think to cool somebody off faster.
1: So I've talked about before, sometimes when I do these, um, you know, attendance numbers and then I look for which wrestlers have the highest average attendance and whatnot. And the guys that are there for a very, very, very long time, like Cena or Kane or Undertaker, you know, their numbers aren't always jumping out. It's the guys that were just there for a very short period of time that things get hot again. You know, the Palmer Cannons or the Kazarnies or something. Um that it will it will pop and it just makes me think you know when when luke harper finally does return to television will he be the the one guy that you know you look for the who had the highest rated segment in all of 2017 on smackdown and it'll turn out to be some kind of fluke where is the one week that luke was actually shown on television maybe in that gender match or something i doubt it but i, I just mean it, it's funny to me that there is also some stars on smackdown that if you go to the live show you'll
2: see that are you know still are kind of sitting in limbo and i because I was doing all this uh, studying with the Observer attendance, I also looked at North American house shows. And North American house shows are on par for what they should be, 3,700 as the average for September. And that's, that is down from last year, but it's on par with what it had been in 2014 and 15. We actually see in September that uh, SmackDown's average attendance did a little bit better than Raw. We have 4,100 for SmackDown versus 3,300 for Raw, but Raw is beating SmackDown in most other months. That's interesting.
1: And, and the other part of that is, of course, SmackDown runs those Monday night house shows. So you could even say SmackDown usually artificially has kind of a, um, a knock against it because right. it's already running on an off night on a bad against main competition. But when Cena was on SmackDown, it was was really helping him. And so it's interesting to see September, which is a month Cena was not on SmackDown for the most part, unless you're including the um, the show in China. These are North American. Okay, North American. Good, good. Yes. And I think that's the other thing that's important to say is that uh, international is a crapshoot. You know, is it really fair to compare one time they go to China or one time they go to India or or the one time they go to Denmark, you know, against other countries? I think I think you could make it probably a strong argument that we could develop some UK metrics. Because they've been touring the U.K. so consistently for so many years that there is some value in saying, you know, how are they doing in the U.K. marketplace, U.K., Ireland, Wales, Scotland, all that stuff together. But beyond that, I would have a hard time saying they always – maybe Germany as well because they have been pretty consistent on touring Germany. Um, But Or or even Japan where we could say, you know, kind of how is that one Japan tour a year going or that one Mexico tour now we're down to. Um, But but U.K. is probably the – UK is probably the only one where they're doing enough major shows that you could make some really good comparisons. Because even Australia, which can be hot or cold, that's a tough one because they're just not going there enough to always make it, make sure that you're comparing, you know, apples to apples.
2: Yeah. And we did hear reports that the attendance was like ten thousand for this big Kiwis show in Australia, where where they, where they uh, usually draw a bigger show, bigger crowd in, in Australia. Uh, but the limits of this study, I should point out is that this data is not 100% complete. We're relying on not individual attendances that are reported directly by WV because they don't report individual attendances. WV on a quarterly basis just gives us an average attendance and they don't break it down by event type or anything like that. They only break it down by region, by North America and international. So what I've done here is we just extracted a bunch of data from the Wrestling Observer results section where, where Meltzer reports attendances. And, and those attendances are usually round numbers that are yeah. who knows how he really gets them. So, maybe, so that, maybe maybe that, he gets them from fans who are giving him attendance reports or giving him live event reports, and then they include an attendance. Maybe he's talking to a worker who's actually on the show and gives him an attendance estimate,
1: or or uh, but, a worker but, or a worker that is getting a paycheck that has attendance in it in some way. Ooh, maybe. That that's the but other. That, would it would it happen that fast though? Because he's a, he's reporting these things. No, only but a sometimes couple weeks later. S- sometimes weeks later, or even months later, he will go back and he will report like the UK tour, and It'll he'll do have an actual, exact yeah. numbers. Yeah. And I, I do sometimes wonder if that's like when you're on the European tours or something like that, um, whether or not they they have some kind of different accounting that you know they they
2: do get some greater detail or someone gets greater detail. Yeah, because every now and then, what we're talking about is you look in the W E section of the Observer down at the bottom, just before or just around the uh, the house show attendance reports. He'll go back and this will be after probably he's already reported in the results section in a prior issue. Here the attendance was 5,600. He'll say, oh, at on, on in such and such town on such and such date, here's an actual and it will be like an exact number, not just a rounded number that ends in zeros, but but a, a number that looks like an actual number and. I don't know if that's paid or well, the every, other everybody place, in place building or who knows what.
1: The other place that in theory you could get some of that from would be if there's any tax filings that they have to do based on attendance. You know, if there's a, a tax on attendance. Yeah.
2: At You've obtained some gate receipts, haven't you?
1: We we've seen that before. Um, we saw lawsuits, you know, uh, the New Jersey Commission over WrestleMania four had a big lawsuit with WWE
2: where they went back and forth arguing on tax policy. I say lawsuit. You found, found gate receipts from uh, New York State Athletic Commission from uh, was a, a, a FOIA or a FOIL request.
1: Yeah, that's right. I did do a, a FOIL request on that and and they gave me some attendance numbers uh, as well. Yeah. So yeah, there there are cases where you, you see attendance numbers that are, are fed through. So there is some information that's out there, and I, I think that's an interesting source too. Um, I, I linked an article on, on, from BuzzFeed yesterday. I, I don't know if you noticed this about um, – I think it's Tim van der Zee, uh, the work that he's doing about the Cornell food scientist. Do you know what I'm talking so, about?
2: I, I, I saw that, yeah.
1: So he is a graduate student in, in statistics over in the Netherlands. Is it a graduate student or is it a professor? I think he's a graduate student, actually, or at least he
2: started this work as a graduate student, I believe.
1: And so he um, – what he – Basically,
2: he, he, much like me, are, are, are just – he's just cooking the books to make headline-friendly uh, stats. Not that, Tim. That, not Tim, I want to point oh, out. Okay. The Cornell okay.
1: scientist that they're accusing is. What Tim did is he basically said, here's four studies that appear to use the exact same information. They, they all were about a pizza chain and a pretty clear – clear was that they basically found like a pizza chain in Ithaca or something that they could run a, a study on and basically um, from what I can tell what they did is they gave people flyers and either the flyer said the buffet cost $4 or the flyer said the buffet cost $8 and then when you came and you ate then you filled out a survey afterwards that said how many pieces did you eat um, and then they would pay attention to what your age and demographic what your weight your height was and then like uh, where did you sit and with, who did you come with And they wrote four different studies based on this, where, like, one study was about, you know, when people spend more money on a buffet, they're more likely to eat more. So kind of the idea that you don't eat till you're full, you eat till you feel that you've got your money's worth. Mm -hmm. Um, One was about, like, men will eat more if they're sitting with a woman. Uh, And then just – yeah, it was all these things. So it was all the, you know, very headline-grabbing things. And what Tim uh, Vanderzee did is he basically said – These four studies all look like they're the exact same data set. And in fact, they all seem to have almost the same sample number. They all seem to be using a very similar description of what happened. Um, I'm pretty sure they're the same study. But here's my problem. I keep asking for the data, and the guy won't give it to me. But I can use these advanced statistical techniques to start saying whether the levels of um, inference that they're using to prove something or not prove it – Are in fact, at a a deep enough level. So basically, his point was, if you only have, if you have less than 100 people in a survey, you can't be going to the 100th digit, because, you know, you can't divide x over y, and then bring it out that many digits, because you don't have 100 people to get 100th digit precision. Does that make sense? Not 100th, but the 100th place, I should say.
2: So the, the, the number of samples that they have are less than 100. So you shouldn't be rounding to a a number place.
1: Well, or if you are, you should be, ex, you should be acknowledging that it could be, you know, one more person in the sample could have moved that percentage up quite a lot.
2: Right. And it, so and is this relevant to, to, to this attendance study? Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Cause my whole point is that what he did is he basically said with this data we have and the rounding that you're doing, here's the level of precision you can say for a P value or a T value or basically a relevance value. And then, similarly with with the way meltzer reports uh, attendances here we treat it like you know we can say it's 4700 but sometimes i wonder if we were to you know use this kind of statistical thing of saying well we know it's only rounded to the nearest 100 what's the yeah. what's the margin of error that we can actually get from this and whether that margin of error sometimes could be greater than what we're saying is the difference month to month of things so when and, i say and
2: i wonder if the margin of error is just bigger than what we would consider a meaningful difference. Absolutely. And so you know?
1: I would love to use, if I ever had that kind of knowledge and understanding, to use that same kind of statistical thing to say, you know, we say that February was 2,000 for Raw and 4,100 for SmackDown on a, on domestic attendance. But really the margin of error is it could have been as low as, 1200 for raw or as much as 3000 for raw and smackdown's number could be as low as 3000 as well, you know, right where it completely gives us the opposite result just because we're, we're, we're not taking into effect the rounding factors that are available. So that that's my right. long rant about food scientists and, and, Netherlands and whatnot but
2: uh and, and well if w thinks we're getting something wrong here they can always just provide us with the real individual attendances <laughs> yes they can and they do of course they give us these rounded numbers and that again
1: to me made me think oh could we use those rounded numbers for this data i think obviously the data set they give us is just usually too small but there is some like nuggets in there because you get live event revenue and then you get average ticket price and then you get average attendance and that never quite adds up right to what they're saying for the average attendance you know, mm-hmm. and so
2: the, they You're talking about what they, what be actually reports. Yeah, w, like we actually reports paid attendance, and what we're looking at is not necessarily paid or exactly. paid plus free. We're looking at who knows what's what's in the person's mind that gives the number to Dave. Maybe yeah. they just sat there in their seat and looked around the arena and said. Yeah, 4,500.
1: Or they're using numbers like, well, whenever the hockey game is here, they always report that this many people are in the building. So therefore, I'm basing it off of that you know, other data set. And we don't know if
2: that other data set is true either. Right. So that is a, a limit of what we're trying to talk about here by using observer attendances. And I want to point out also that we don't have an attendance for every single event either. We have most of the raw, raw events, Raw TV events, he, he, he reports an attendance. For about half of the SmackDown events, before they did the recent brand split, there was no attendance. But ever since they started doing the brand split, for whatever reason, Dave's uh, reported more attendances for these SmackDown TV tapings. And we have most of the North American house shows as well. We have, I think, most but slightly, a slightly smaller portion of international house shows, but we were not even considering that in the uh, basically the study that we just talked about. Yeah. So, so we have most of the attendance that concerns us, but not all of it. We are missing some and that. And remember, I'm, I'm talking about all these averages here. So like we're, we, we've are we got, say, four weeks of SmackDown. We might be only having three reported attendances. And remember, those attendances are our estimates and they are not actuals. But I do
1: think, us. you know, we have nine and a half years of data now from the Observer that we've called out. And we have even more if, if you go back and someone gave us all of 2006 before. So, I mean, we have
2: 10 plus years of data and in and the study I just discussed that I may end up writing something about, I only looked at the four most recent years, but we could go, if we wanted to, we could go back all the way to, I think we have about half of 2008. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and someone even gave us the rest of 2008 in one of our data sets. So
1: we, we do have all those other data numbers. Um, th- th- what I mean by that is that we have a lot of data. And so month to month, maybe the number isn't so great, but I really do feel that year over year and market over market over several years, you are getting a pretty good feel for what's happening and I do think that you can tell the difference between a building that has 2000 in it and a building that has 5000 in it. So there is definitely the difference. You know, I don't think anyone knows the difference between 9700 and 10200. You know, that that variability is just not possible. But, you know, on this on a logarithmic scale, you can definitely tell the difference and I do think our, our data as a whole tells us something.
2: Yeah. And you do see visual patterns here when I look at this this graph that I made. You do see what you've talked about in the past, January to March are stronger months than the rest. Yeah, that those jump out at you here.
1: And and I always think that's the thing is that I complain sometimes about people uh, you know, there's there's kind of like three kinds of wrestling journalism out there where there's the copy of the the wrestling observer newsletter and just r- paste it somewhere. There's the, I'm doing my own original analysis, and it's not very well informed, but I'm doing my own original analysis. And then there's the, I'm doing my own original analysis, and I, I've taken a lot of data, and I've done it. And while number one, I think is the most There's easily, about
2: two or three people in that business, but yeah.
1: <laughs> I think while number one is very, um, well, I would argue Dave does a lot of that, too. Dave Dave does a lot of original stuff as two well. Two or three. Or three. <laughs> so number one is very consumable, but is not very um, interesting in the sense that nobody cares who wrote the copy and paste revision of somebody else's work. And so instead, they they identify it with the website, not with the writer most of the time. Yeah. And number two um, gets a lot of flack because it's really easy to pick on people. I, I will always go back to when Chris Smith, who now writes that Forbes list of, you know, the biggest, uh, uh, WWE salaries every year. He wrote a terrible article one time where he was trying to prove whether or not Cena as champion led to WWE having higher profits. And I remember picking it apart quite extensively about just how ridiculous the the data set and the numbers he was using was because he wasn't even using like monthly numbers or anything. He was using like quarterly numbers and then WWE profit filings. And it's like, they they have so little to do with each other of whether Ceno evil lost them a bunch of money in a year or not. Um,
2: but uh, we, we I, just had the Forbes article the other week that had a, a claim that W network subscribers in India had declined since Jim Mahalo been champion, which is, as far as we know is not true. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: so those articles are they're easy to criticize, but I at least applaud people for doing original work and for trying to, you know, test a, a theory out and start a conversation. And then number three are the people that are trying to do work, and I still think it should be picked apart and attacked and, and challenged and you know building better data sets. But I that's the kind of work I'm always really interested in, and I think sometimes it's the hardest work to do because it is sometimes really easy just to do the hot take on a very simple story and give an opinion piece or to just, you know, kind of rephrase what you read in some other thing and then pass it off as original journalism. And the reality is a lot of this stuff is really hard to find in an original source. Someone has to write an article, right? Someone has to interview the wrestler. And that stuff is, you know, that that is all original content. It's every time someone sits down and does a real interview with someone. But I I think, you know, I always would rather see a lot more of number 2 because I think people that are in category number 2 move to category number 3 over time they move from poorly sourced, poorly thought out work to good work if they stay at it and they think about it. And th- And that's the key is that, you know, I, I don't want to discourage people ever from doing things. And that's why I try to be open a lot of times with where I'm getting my source of data from that, you know, people sometimes will be like, you know, very secretive about their sources. And I don't think it does well for you because I think you end up being like the food scientist, where once you don't give us your data, people are going to dig in more and more and more. And when they find discrepancies, they don't, always attribute it for anything except for malice
2: and i I think we should be pretty open about where we get our data from and a lot of times i'll try to even link to a excel spreadsheet within the article itself so like if, if you want to you can look at the data that i looked at and see what you think of it like we should be welcoming of people criticizing or questioning how we got to the conclusions or why we wrote the things that we did based on the data that we have um which brings me back to the the complaints I've had in the past about sources, and, and we should be open about any potential problems with the data. Like we hopefully, like we just discussed, like look, this is incomplete stuff, and it's estimates, and maybe the margin of error is larger than the difference we're t- trying to even talk about. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's boring. <laughs> I think that's also an honest thing. Is that are, all of our listeners would disagree
1: with you? Well, I think it's I think it's interesting when you put it in context. I think you have to put it in context. Is what's tough is yeah. to say, okay, this month is down. Why? And that's tough to prove with stats, right? And a lot of times that goes more towards the feel. I feel like it's down. because Sina is not a factor, and then you can sometimes prove that out with some other
2: data. Yeah, or you I have feel to start like this, the this television program is is awful and repulsive and it must be. And then you see pictures of attendance, you know, being yes. sparse, and so it must be because of this poor TV show.
1: But numbers alone rarely tell us a story. Like I always I talk about this a lot at work where there's a difference between metrics and insights. A metric is we're down by ten percent on attendance. An insight is as we lost the power of Cena. And we continue to use Jinder Mahal in a storyline where he um, beats his opponents in the same manner every month on pay-per-view in not very good matches. People are losing interest in this brand being a unique, separate thing, yada, yada, yada. You know, that's an insight. And sometimes those insights are opinion. But at least they give you some way to tie the facts to the data and to the trends. And I think that's really important right now. Sometimes we lack insights when we give the data points. And we sometimes do – insights with no data points and that's just opinion um WWE had a huge event when they ran No Mercy and it had Brock and Braun had Cena and Reigns do you think they were trying to pop the Q3 number or do you think this was a quirk of scheduling where it's just Brock is only available certain days Cena is only available certain days let's go ahead and do this
2: I don't know I think it could be a factor I think there was also Cena's leaving for a while and Vince McMahon decided that well, he's not going to do it later, so he just might as well do it sooner. As far as a Cena versus Reigns match, and maybe even a Lesnar versus Strowman match.
1: Yeah, and I know you have a question on here. Do we think that the end subs will be higher than average subs for Q3? I don't think so. I don't think um, Q3 average will be uh, lower than end subs on 9:30.
2: Personally, why not? So SummerSlam is going to be a, a bigger peak, I guess.
1: Well, I mean, I would have to go back. You, you you do those beautiful graphs, and unfortunately you didn't put one in here yet in the document. Maybe by the time you play... I, I would yeah. like to see where Q3 normally ends versus Q2. Um, but I to me, it just feels like coming off of WrestleMania with all the, the push and all that, you, you had a good spillover into Q3, and I just think that there's going to be attrition throughout this entire quarter. Because, um, you know, the Mae Young Classic, I don't think it... it I think it it rejuvenated the viewers that enjoy that sort of thing, like me, that are casual WWE Network viewers. But I don't know if I believe that it would necessarily lead to a higher um, number of viewers coming back and sticking with the product, especially with the um, the such abbreviated time span. So let me look here. So Q3 in 2016 was down a little bit from Q2. Q3 in 2015 was higher than Q2, though that was the first year that we had a lot of that UK international and we continued to add marketplaces in that year. Um, I think we're going to see a trend much more like last year, where Q2 Q, uh, was high and Q3 dropped and then Q4 dropped a little bit more.
2: So, and that's what they're projecting. They're projecting 1.54 million within 2% for Q3. That's an average sub number. And, and what we're talking about here, if you don't know, if you don't uh, pour over the uh, WB quarterly reports like we do, they uh, they re- they project an average subscriber number every quarter. The number that they've projected this for this quarter is 1.54. We'll find out the real answer in the end of October sometime when they do their Q3 report, which the Q3 ends today, September 30th, actually. And uh, But my point was they give us two metrics they give us the number of subscribers at the end of the quarter and then they give us the average number of subscribers throughout the quarter. So well, I mean
1: they talking about. to be really fair, they give us a ton of metrics. They give us number paid, number free, number international yeah. free, number international paid, number churn, number number new hires, yeah. number recaptures. I mean, they give us a lot of data. It's but just so those to... are just breakdowns of end subs and average subs, yeah. Yeah. But in terms of the large categories, you really only get average and end. And um, ending sub as of 630, uh, just pulling up that number right now, Uh, and the way I pull up that number for anyone who doesn't know, you go to sec.gov, you type in, you know, go to company filings, type in WWE, look for the 10Q, and it'll be in that. Or you can go to corporate.wwe.com and look at their uh, investors section, and that will have it as well.
2: Paid subs for the end of Q2 were 1.568 million compared to an average of one point six three four. So, n subs were higher than average subs for q two that's that's of course the quarter that in, includes Wrestlemania at the very beginning of it in April. there we go Uh one five six seven nine hundred
1: was the exact number yes they they always go one more digit of precision when you go to the ten q I find. um and of that it was uh, one point one five seven eight hundred domestic and then four hundred and ten thousand international so. Again, as we talk about China and India is the future, remember they launched China in Q2 – or I'm sorry, in Q3. Uh, India continues to go. They they have a champion who is of Indian descent. And once again, I think we will see them not say a word about it unless people you know challenge them on the call and they'll kind of just uh, push it aside. Yeah. We expect them to have the call probably at the end of October, so a little bit before Halloween. So, I mean, what
2: about this? So let's say – Average subs are 1.45 or 1.54 million, like they project. And then we get an ending sub number of like 1.6. Can we attribute that? Or
1: I would I be guess? shocked.
2: I would be absolutely shocked. Yeah, but we I'm
1: could saying attribute that. Yeah, we yeah. Have, we, yeah, we because that would infer that. The number dropped and went back up. I attribute up.
2: that to no mercy, by the way, is what we're yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. say here. Yes,
1: absolutely, because that would infer that the number dropped and went back up. Because if the average is lower than the ending number and it's lower than the beginning number, which, as I pointed out here, was what, uh, 1.567, 1.568. So we, we would be saying basically you have a beginning number and an end number that is high, and then you have an average number that's lower. Well, that says to me you had to – it dipped in the middle. Yeah. And it had to – and then that means it's a curve, right? So if it's a curve, it's going back up. And what's the most likely reason it went back up? Something that happened in September. And, yeah, I bet a little bit of it you would then attribute
2: to the tournament and a little bit – and most of it you'd attribute to the No Mercy. Now, the, the alternative would be to attribute it to SummerSlam, I think, not the okay. – not so much May. Young. I think May Young has a limited appeal sure. to a limited sure. number of fans, and SummerSlam has a much wider appeal to their general fan base. Um, uh, absolutely. But, but again, Yeah, the, I agree. The point that we're trying to make here is: remember, No Mercy happened on September twenty fourth, and this quarterly report that they're going to put out next month, uh, the time period for that ends September thirtieth. So, it, it, so what we're trying to say here is, when we see that ending sub number, it may be reflective of how well No Mercy did.
1: And and you know the other piece of that is historically. You know, we have seen that that one week ramp up. I mean, when you get the numbers for WrestleMania, it's always interesting because you get basically the number at the end of the quarter, 331. You get the number the day of WrestleMania and then you get where you end the year at. And what you can see is in that one week time, sometimes between the end of the quarter and WrestleMania, we can see hundreds of thousands of people signing up. So we do know it's possible to have an enormous spike based on a pay-per-view. But that's for WrestleMania. And the question is, was No Mercy, even though it had WrestleMania quality uh, lineups, not necessarily the matches themselves delivering at that point, but the quality of the, you know, Cena versus Reigns and Braun versus Brock, um, would that have enticed hundreds of thousands of people to make the difference and, you know, sign up?
2: And I could see a strategy from them to thinking, okay, we get a big spike for SummerSlam, but let's entice those people to stay on and not cancel. And forget that they have a subscription or whatever because we're going to put on such a big show for them the following month that they're going to want to stay with us. And then they're going to create a habit of just keeping the network. I think it's possible. I think I'm more and more
1: seeing from them, though, less of this hotshot behavior. I mean, yes, they hotshot to try to give the free WrestleMania. But I'm seeing less and less of them seeming like they're programming their – television programming specifically for the idea that you to try to bump up their wwe network numbers again this is opinion not insight um but i i just feel more and more like they're fo- changing their focus they're pivoting towards that premium tier and that's the way that they're going to grow this service in the future is by creating a differentiated tier of service where you get different content
2: yeah it seems like more and more i think about this company and this is not anything revolutionary but it's, it's more about volume. It's more about getting more money out of more fans, right? Like we see more and more events. We see higher ticket prices, but flat attendances. We see, and I think that's the next chapter. This is going to extend to the network. We're not necessarily going to see more and more subscribers, but we're going to see more and more revenue in the network segment because they're going to eventually probably do a tiering system where they get more money out of each subscriber. Yeah, I think it'll be a three-tier system. I think you'll have a free tier, which was, we'll
1: have some VOD, and they'll use that to make some money. And then and maybe a live up, stream access. Yeah, and, and they'll use that also to pump up the number of people they say are using their service, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So now they can say, we have 2 million weekly viewers of our stream. Yeah, and I've, I've heard some suggestions out there that, well, maybe they're as part of their new tiering system, if they have one. They haven't definitely decided they announced that they're going to do one. But it, they've heard some suggestions that in the, in the new tiering system, maybe they're going to do a tier that... Only offers you the pay per view and less of the other stuff. Maybe like a, I don't know, a seven ninety nine. dollars For yeah. just just the pay per view and and not everything you get. No I, archive I, access. Yeah. I do not think that that is going to happen. I think that would be very surprised because why I, would they why would they separate out their most valuable piece of content, you know, and, and offer it at a lower price? I could only see them
1: creating a skinny bundle like that if it was for actually international territories, where you know you would say. Nobody gives a crap about the history of WWE in India.
2: And so maybe instead, where the economics are tougher and it's hard for people to afford it.
1: Yeah. So instead, I'm selling you $5 pay-per-views. And essentially what you're doing is you're paying $5 a month or $2 a month or in local currency or whatever it is to then get those people on. And then we think we can get, you know, 100,000 of them at that low number. And it sounds good to us because now we can start saying, hey, in India we get, you know, 200,000 or 500,000 people. You know, watching. Mm-hmm. And so I could see it as a marketing campaign where you're selling that in places where you really don't think that archive is worth a lot of money and where you might have already priced yourself out of the marketplace. Because, like we said, in China, they're
2: already using local market pricing. Yeah. So but, Jinder Mahal versus the Great Kali is still a possibility for a WrestleMania main event.
1: You know, Jinder, uh, Great Kali has got a movie coming, uh, he's got a biopic yeah. Yeah. with Shu uh, Shin Rajput who um he he apparently did Authology? a apology he's one he is one, oh. and uh he apparently did a um like a a very famous cricket star i believe and he he got a lot of praise for that bio movie he did and they're saying oh he looks like him he does it he did a great job of being that c- character and they're like yeah he looks nothing like great kali he does not move like great kali <laughs> but i am fascinated by this like great kali story that they would make because you know you have great kali the policeman right and then you have Great Collie comes to America. And of course, a story like this, I doubt would ever talk about the guy that died um, in
2: California. Was Great Collie a policeman before he was a wrestler?
1: Yes, yes. That was the, the whole story is so that they're, they're like they basically just made him a policeman because he was the biggest, scariest guy around. Um, and then he's in America and he gets trained. And then eventually, you know, after bouncing around and, and being in all sorts of places, he eventually gets picked up by WWE and then he becomes champion and then he goes back to India and then kind of starts his own things in India and kind of becomes
2: a big deal there. And, and even oh, he, was, you know, he was in New Japan, Giant Singh. I watched him in the jazz in the yeah, of Enokiism in the early 2000s, New Japan.
1: So, I mean, there's I think it's a fascinating story, not only because of like it is kind of fascinating that a guy from India, you know, was a policeman and jumped all around the world and did stuff. But just the stories that people have told about, you know, being around Great Kali and seeing how that would be reproduced reportrayed in this context would be amazing because you would probably have someone playing Vince McMahon in the WWE and that would be amazing to see the Bollywood version of Vince McMahon <laughs> it would be amazing to see the you know do we have the Luke Gallows version of would Luke Gallows play Luke Gallows a guy who's stuck on callie duty uh in deep south wrestling and the stories that he used to tell Uh, And, you know, Kali's wife, this like little old woman that he would basically he brought to America and then like basically treated like as his slave to like do all the groceries and laundry and he wouldn't do anything. Really? (laughs) Oh, yeah. you should. should. There's a really funny high spot shoot where it's AJ and Gallows and um, some other Bullet Club guys and they're just telling like great Kali stories. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, I exaggerate when I, I know, say, of slide. course
2: there was the incident where he was training. I think it's APW, isn't it? He was training yes. and, the uh, the, the student he was training with got killed as a result of like, I think a spine buster, some sort of move that he gave him.
1: I think he gave the tree slam that kind of fall down yeah. slam that he did. And Which the a guy didn't move tuck, to take. <laughs> yeah. And the guy didn't tuck his head at all, yeah. allegedly, and basically got brain swelling. And instead of, you know, hospitalizing him or something else, they basically, um, I, I don't know whether he. He he showed signs of, I think, of nausea and whatnot, and I don't know – I don't remember the full story in terms of like did they keep training with him or what, but essentially he ended up getting like brain swelling and he died from it, from a, a traumatic brain injury. And so he was a trainee in the sense that you know he was probably taking bumps that he wasn't ready to take, yeah. and the school basically saw money in Kali or had been paid to train Kali. I'm not even sure which one it was. And so they were basically using these other guys. And I think the family had to settle with the with the company for, for a lot of money in the end because it was a wrongful death suit. The, the company being WWE? No, I think for APW or – Okay. I, I think whatever the training school was because this was all pre-WWE and this wasn't even when, w, when he was in Deep South. So I don't know if he was in this company – because of um i think this was even before he was in new japan and I'm yeah sure. i think i think this was right when basically he had been discovered and that that someone wanted to train him and yeah. i think it was kind of one of those deals where it's like if you can get me a giant i can get him booked in japan and you know different people are going to pay for this money and there'll be some kind
2: of cut cut of the money for you yeah this this is a reference but according to wikipedia's 28 may 2001 brian ong died after receiving a flapjack from Singh, APW was found liable for recklessness after less than a day of deliberations awarding the Ong family for damages of over $1.3 million. Yep. Yeah. So that's actually a case that I don't have in my— um. Uh,
1: compendium of legal filings that I probably should go seek out because that would be an interesting uh, one. I think all the suits about people getting injured in wrestling rings are very, very interesting because it's a very interesting liability question, right? Yeah. Because you know you're going in there and you're wrestling, but then there's a question of what is safe and what is not safe. What is an, a risk that you should be willing to take, and what is a risk that is unsafe or un, un, uh, unfair to ask someone to do.
2: It's in and then, how does I- it makes it any easier or harder to obtain?
1: Um, it's expensive because I think it was a state court filing. Because again, it, it's not about you know all the companies were all in the same state, so I'm guessing it was all done in state court. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that in the past, California filings have been super expensive. It's also from the early 2000s, which means the digitization of it uh, probability is low. Um, I know Bix listens to the show sometimes, so hopefully Bix has some idea about whether the records are there or not. And then, of course, I can look in the Observer to see what information was, was put out at the time. But Ong uh, had
2: a previous concussion during the session, but the trainers gave him a lower evaluation for not avoiding injuries and told him to continue training. In addition, it was proven that Ong did not receive protective gear or supervision by APW staff, and the second concussion ultimately proved fatal for him.
1: Jeez. Yeah, and I think that's the case, is that it wasn't just that he got a head injury, because you could argue in wrestling it's not uncommon to get a head injury when you're training for the first time. I think I don't know about you, but I got my bell rung at least once or twice when I started
2: taking bumps for the first time. Yeah, you have to be very careful. Yeah, it's tough. Because you don't develop the instinct to tuck your head and how to break the fall. Yeah, or or, the first
1: time you take a back body drop or something, it's pretty scary because you can feel like you're not in control. Oh, yeah. I I always still feel like I'm not in control when I take a back body drop. I took a beautiful one, but I had my eyes closed the whole time. (laughs) So I have no clue how I took like great back body drops like the two or three times I did them. Um, And there, I mean, for me, I think that's to me, that's honestly probably the scariest move of all is a back body drop because almost every other move your opponent is touching you and they can somewhat control what's happening to you or you're controlling yourself on a dive or something. What's scary to me is something where you're just thrown in the air and then you have to kind of move your momentum. And I think if you're a gymnast, you probably learn how to do that. And I think that's something in wrestling that, you know, a yeah. good example where the, the gymnasts have a great advantage where the amateur wrestlers and whatnot who are not used to falling like that don't.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, you have to kind of extend your body and make, make sure you land flat. Otherwise, I almost always over rotate regardless. But anyway.
1: Yeah. Or, and you also have to trust that your opponent is going to kind of give you some of that rotation too. So um, let's talk about ticket prices. Uh, You you mentioned WWE's ticket prices, the ability to try and uh, excrete more value per consumer. Uh, Tell me a little bit about this PWG
2: study you just did. So I just went through the internet wayback machine, which is the web archive where you can go and look at old versions of pages. And I just looked at a bunch of old versions, not all of them. I did this pretty fast. So this is not exhaustive. And this is not for every ticket price point that they've ever had for every event. But I went through PWG's event page and I I got a bunch of ticket price price points for PWG going back to 2010 to the present. Um, This was brought on by uh, the recognition that PWG put their tickets on sale for their upcoming event. They're doing All Star Weekend on October 20th and 21st. That's a Friday and Saturday, and you could still buy tickets. It looks like for you could still buy GA tickets, uh, general admission ticket tickets. It looks like maybe the morning after the event, or at least 30 minutes after the tickets went on sale, which in recent times has been very rare because they've been putting tickets on sale at relatively high prices for a, an independent wrestling event, and they would sell out within minutes. You know, we heard stories, I've never tried, but we've heard stories about people sitting there at multiple devices trying to get tickets because they just go instantly. So the buttons, at least as of yesterday afternoon, were still on the website, but I was told by some others that pointed out to me that you can the buttons, they just haven't taken down, but they are actually sold out. But the moral of the story here is tickets are not selling out instantly for PWG like they have in the past. And, uh, and you, you built this beautiful graph where it shows what 2010
1: looks like all the way through 2017 of kind of like the average ticket price. Mm-hmm. So can you walk
2: us through what front row tickets look like over that time? Yeah, so let's just go through each year real quick. Like in 2010, front row tickets were $25 for PWG general admission is $20. In 2011, it, it, it looks like it got up to 30 and 25 And then by 2014, we've got $55 Front row tickets and probably $40 GA. 2015, about the same. 2016, it gets up to $70 front row. 55 general admission, and I know that the ticket price isn't the same for every event. I've realized that by going through this. I know bullet tickets, especially once bullet got even more buzz and hype around it, bullet tickets were a more expensive ticket price point than their other events for the rest of the year. So that, again, this is not exactly precise. These are just selected events that I grabbed real quick. Uh, 2016, it gets up to 70, 55, 85 for front row, 65 for GA. In 2017, uh, the bullet ticket prices were. 110 for front row, 85 for general admission or standing room. And that was bull, Okay, it was a little lower for the all-star weekend event that's coming up. Taking 90, 70, yeah. We're, we're 90 for front row and 70 for GA. So just to put this in context, what you're telling
1: me is that between 2010 and 2012, your average front row ticket was between 25 and 30 bucks. And your average general admission ticket was 20 to 25 bucks. Yep. By three years later... We were talking about 70 to $85, so you know, almost three times as much on on front
2: row, and 55 to $65, so probably about a little less than three times, and two they're and probably, a half times. And, and to know, they're probably in the same venue for all this. This is probably all the American Legion Hall, or if, I'm, I'm not a PDOG expert, but if it's not, it's a, a similar venue size, right? This is like 400 tickets or so that they're putting out? So in theory, you're saying that they're making somewhere between
1: 2x and 3x on revenue compared to three or four years ago per show, but we don't know whether talent costs have increased uh, proportionally.
2: You would think so considering the number of uh – considering who's been in the in the bowlers and things like that. Like they've had Liger and Pentagon and Phoenix. And again, I'm not a PWG expert. Somebody could surely correct me if I'm wrong. But I would think going back years, there was more local talent on the cards that probably wanted lower fees. Although we, I think we do hear that PWG books talent for maybe a lower price than the talent would normally charge because it's PWG. Yeah. And, then the, and part of the value is you get your name out there on a high-profile indie. Though the travel
1: costs have also supposedly been um difficult right because some of these guys are working PWG and then immediately flying back to the UK or flying yeah. to the East Coast to do a different show so i have to imagine that has also been uh, a factor in increasing the cost where the the talent themselves probably is not getting the cut but you're still spending a lot of money because some of these guys are now being booked on other coasts or other places and it, and i would even say the uk talent getting all of them and to california that's probably not been cheap
2: right but I know we've had some situations where the UK talent is just getting based in the US for a while. I, I think Zack Saber Jr. and people like that have, have uh, been examples of that, where maybe they're not flying them right back to the UK. But I'm sure there have been examples of that as well, especially when it comes to the bigger events like Bulla, where they're you know they're just kind of booking the best and most hyped talent that they can reach. And and of course, they're also
1: getting an investment out of this. Right. So it's kind of a two way street where PWG is able to book you at a cheap rate and then get you there. And then a lot of this talent is using that as a springboard. I would imagine um, uh, Joey Janella and Sammy. I can't even remember his Guevara. last name. Guevara. Guevara really got their stake raised quite a lot by having a really strong pwg event and having you know Meltzer just rave and rave and rave about them i'm sure that helped them get booked in more places and and help them you know kind of increase their stock uh uh die jack you know obviously going to wwe right now but coming off you know him and keith lee you know keith lee is a great example of someone who has really
2: revolutionized his stock in uh, a few short years and, and, and i have heard from promoters of talent immediately asking for a higher fee right after they were on pwg i mean not like okay i'm on P- they not like they went to the promoter right after they were on pwg that night but the next time that they were attempted to be booked by a given promoter the talent asked for a higher fee so you're saying
1: when i got like a hundred retweets on my young bucks thing i should have been going over to fightful and taken my fee up and said look how popular i am on social media today maybe if you're booked on bull yeah you know i'm trying to get myself verified on twitter again yeah and i am running into a technical issue where it wants me to now uh verify all login attempts with like you know a a two factor factor thing but every time i go through the process of clicking the button and then getting the code sent to me and putting it in it then gets a technical error so then there's nothing i can do because i i try to send to twitter that i'm getting this technical error but of course, like Twitter has no humans. They just have, you know, like yeah. magic bots that allow racism everywhere yeah. to just. And so they just sent me like a, a login uh, password reset thing. And I was like, that's not at all what my problem is. This is not what's going wrong. <laughs> what's what's so. even the value of being verified anymore? So many I, don't people are verified. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I just figured I figured they're like bitcoins. Right. And there's only so many of them in the universe. And when Gabe lost his. It means that there's one more out there for the wrestling world. Mm-hmm. And no, I, I really don't know. I just, you know, I actually thought it'd be fun just because uh, for work trivia, you know, you're always trying to come up with that strange thing that, you know, is, is about you at work without revealing too much. And so I thought, you know, I'm verified on Twitter might be a fun one. Do you tell people at work
2: that you are a, a professor of WrestleNomics?
1: You know, it doesn't come up as much as you'd expect. Yeah. A, I'm actually a pretty grumpy person at work. Oh. Uh, oh, you, you too, huh? i'm I'm well known for not being uh very emotive and uh 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 normal, and then when someone comes and sees me at an improv show, they're blown away because I'm so like expressive and nice and and interested and and engaged and then you know if they ever heard about this the podcast, I don't think they would believe it but yeah yeah I have a very similar story. No, I'm pretty. So yes, I don't. I don't know if there's a, a value to being verified, but I'm an old man, so you know, uh, these kind of meaningless awards. It's my slammy. Um, I wrote an article this week for Fightful. Uh, you did so. I don't have my verified status, so I got my normal pay, which is a okay with me.
2: Oh, um, but you, would, what you need to get verified is someone to impersonate you or parody you, right? Like we could come <laughs> up with the the the, the fake Mookie Ghana I'm okay. account. I'm and okay it. with no one doing that. You know. <laughs> someone will just put out yes somebody will just put out like fake stats this is a great idea i'll i'll make make some notes later you know there is like a wwe stats subreddit
1: on um on reddit Mm -hmm. and it has like 11 followers and i did not start it i would like to make that very clear (laughs) but i would post it and then i would have no one respond and i'd be like this thing is dead but there is like a wwe stats uh subreddit um so i wrote this fightful story and um what this was about was uh, Bray Wyatt's wife, probably eventually to be ex-wife, Samantha Rotunda, um, has filed for divorce in back in, I think it was April, in Florida. And normally I wouldn't write a story about a, a wrestler getting divorced because that's, that's their own private life. I'm, I'm not that interested in talking about that. What was interesting to me is as part of this divorce hearing – Um, they made a motion to WWE to basically give a whole bunch of information about Bray Wyatt's uh, earning potential. Uh, Actually, if you read the full thing, it actually says the husband and the wife's. But I assume Samantha Rotunda doesn't have any of these, you know, uh, safety deposit boxes or booking contracts or other things with WWE. So it's really just the husband. Um, But essentially going through. 89 different subcategories of things that you know everything from what's the booking contract what's the merchandise agreement what is the um pay stubs what is the uh Like I said, safety deposit boxes. Do you have any business taxes? Do you have any business owns? Do you have any loans? Do you have any fictitious names that you've started a company? Do you have a credit card? Do you have a pension? Do you have real estate? Do you have property? Do you have mortgage? Do you have a joint venture agreement? Do you have fringe benefits? Do you have a disability pension? Do you have a power of attorney? Do you have a trust? Uh, do you have a contract? Do you have any banking information? All this stuff. So they, they looked for all this stuff from WWE. And WWE basically wrote back that this is uh, harassing them. What? Let me
2: see if I can find their exact phrase. Unreasonable burden or expense. Oh, abusive, yes. harassing, overboarding would cost WWE undue or unreasonable burden or expense.
1: Yeah, and and they also, I think, also looked for any – um. You know, email records related to Bray's pay or something of that nature. And that, of course, also gets – anytime you're doing email discovery, the costs really jump up. So they wrote back and they said, we think it would cost between a quarter million dollars and $483 million to to do this. So they're saying it would cost a quarter million dollars to comply with this. And basically we're pushing back saying there's a few – topics that uh we think we can we can give you like we think we can give you his booking contract we think we can give um uh we we think we can give uh you the uh some some tax statements you know 1099s of what you've done if you're not familiar with the u.s tax system 1099s are basically what you get from your employer that says how much you earn from them that year but uh, we don't think we can give you, you know, a comprehensive thing to prove that we don't have any records on some of these subjects, because that would be tough for them to prove in some cases that you know we have no records on this such a thing, because you'd have to search through all your business records to prove you don't. Even though logically, no, you don't have Bray Wyatt's loan dop- document for this or that. Mm-hmm. I do imagine. You know, if you think about it, if you've ever gone out and gotten a loan or something like that, they ask to verify your income, and oftentimes they, they contact your employer. So there are probably cases where, you know, you, you're going to see revenue streams where WWE has a record of a, a corresponding thing that someone could have done that, in theory, they could hide from their husband or wife. You know, if you got a personal loan and you use WWE to verify that loan and you never told that other person about it and it's a secret bank account, WWE might have some record that that bank account exists. So it's you know, not as know,
2: they're, they're claiming here. It's going to cost them about two hundred fifty thousand dollars to four hundred eighty-three thousand dollars to to produce this. And maybe we should just extend an offer to WWE. Say, hey, I know I know you got this request here, and it's going to cost you a lot of money. But if you just turn over all of your records to Chris Harrington and Brandon Howard, we'll go through it for you, and we'll you know alleviate you of that cost.
1: I don't think it's going to happen. They filed. So what happened is is that basically WWE was balking uh Samantha's counsel in Florida filed a subpoena. WWE didn't want to, you know, comply, so they they sued in Stanford court, basically comply with the subpoena. It's the same thing that CM Punk did. And if you recall, the costs that they quoted in the CM Punk article um were not actually all that different. Um, I think they said that it would cost uh two hundred and forty one thousand is the final amount that they they said Punk had to pay and then he had to pay half of that. That's how much they said it would cost, and they said originally, the cost of of complying with his subpoena request was one hundred eighty three thousand to four hundred forty three thousand. So, um, in the end, basically, it was very similar amounts of money for what you know they they said these different compliance costs are. And I personally think that's the key. If WWE had told Samantha Rotunda's um, counsel that this was going to be super cheap and punk's counsel found out about it he could have probably come back and said hey by the way uh why are you giving preferential treatment to this person and giving them a low cost for subpoena compliance when mine was was super high and so i think a lot of this is just going back to they're in a corner that now that and of course they they gave out that estimate of how much it would cost before it was going to be in connecticut law but um That they had to kind of be consistent with the way that they're treating different people. So a lot of this is not necessarily that they want to bankrupt her or they want to hide this information from her. But based on the broad nature of the request they made, they use the same way that they estimate legal costs. Now, you can argue they estimate legal costs way too high, that they should be using contract employees or contract lawyers instead of the high-priced $600-an-hour lawyers to deal with a lot of this stuff they could argue that pulling the booking contract and the tax returns probably would take a very small amount of time.
2: Yeah. So, so what I get from this is because they're trying to evade and intimidate CM Punk, they have to try to evade and intimidate Bray Wyatt's ex-wife to be,
1: I, I would say because such a broad request was made of them, they have to interpret it in the same way that they interpreted the CM Punk one. If she comes back with a very narrow request I think it would work out better, and I'm not a, I, I haven't talked to any diverse, divorce lawyers on this yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if the list of all these 89 things that you know they're looking for, that's a common thing you ask a business to do, and most businesses just say, I have no information about this WWE decided to take a different path and say, I refuse to answer those questions, so I think if you narrow down that list to, like they said, the 25 items that they thought they might have something on, and you get even closer WWE will probably be able to comply with the subpoena for a much lower Cost than what they're estimating their high estimate was of course if they were to try to comply
2: with every part of this entire request but they trying to put the expense on Samantha Rotunda as as just like they're trying to put the expense on CM Punk that will be a question that we'd left to
1: be to seen Um, in theory in the other case the judge made a ruling that said we think you have to pay 50% and then they went ahead and they did it and then they said here's 50% of the cost and then Punk came back and said well you're including the cost of fighting the subpoena you're including all this high-priced labor, and I think the real cost is only about 25 percent of what you've you've submitted is what is fair, and so they'll negotiate a settlement of how much punkos. Until I it, right now, this is a brand new case. There hasn't been you know a judge's order about what it is. So in theory, right now they don't have I don't think standing to you know put a bill to Samantha Rotunda. But I think in time, yes, there could be some uh, cost that they, they uh, associate directly with her and that a judge would find, OK, this is how much of this you have to bur- – how much of the burden you have to cover. Um, everything was filed on the 22nd of September, and uh, like I told people, if you go to the Superior Court case lookup for Connecticut – you can just type in party search, a party name, and you type in World Wrestling, and it will show all the cases that they have against them that have been digitized. And most of those cases are closed. They're old cases. And a few of the cases um, are not. And so one case is the Punk case um, is not technically closed, you could say. It's, he, he basically appealed, you know, I want to pay only 25% instead of the full amount, but he never really got an answer back from them on what they were doing on that. Because uh, I think it was a non-arguable thing, but it's possible that there'll be some response from the court at some point. Uh, Rotunda's thing is going in court now. We'll see where, where that lands. I imagine at some point WWE is going to reply to this. And then we, we expect – I think the third case that's active right now is there's a, um, a, a staffing dispute where WWE basically like used a contract firm to hire some people. And then what oftentimes happens if you hire from, you know, a a contract firm is that you make language that says, if I hire this person, I have to pay you a a percent of the money that they make. And so they're basically in an argument with the staffing firm over whether or not they have to pay for some of the people they hired, because you you always have the incentive of the company that kind of tries to work around the staffing firm by saying, hey, I'll give you a full time contract, but I'm not going to pay your recruiter.
2: So So this is this is a complaint that that was found, right? That's, that's what you would call this document?
1: It was a complaint. Yes, they filed a complaint. It's called Rotunda, Samantha Rotunda versus World Wrestling Incorporated. It is a. Hmm, let's
2: see if I can find any other information. And um, and, and and you obtain this because you have super secret sources that provided you with this information, right? This is something that no other writer could have ever discovered. Is that
1: true? No, I I just went to I, I check on the Punk lawsuit about once a week, and oh. I just went to Connecticut and typed in World Wrestling. And so this showed stuff is up.
2: publicly out there, for, and anybody could have found this.
1: Not only that, it's free. Like, you don't even have to register. Every filing is just there on the site. You just click it, and the PDF shows up. And it was the same with the punk stuff. I couldn't believe it went for months on the punk stuff, and nobody noticed it. So it doesn't always show up on the search engines, but you just have to go to the actual court and type in party name. And what's great about Connecticut is all the counties in Connecticut are on this. So it's not even something where in Florida and in Texas, you kind of have to go
2: county by county, which is a real pain. And there's but probably not here, that many counties in Connecticut, right? Small state.
1: Uh, no, I don't think there is. And also, this is the Superior Court. So, you know, I'm sure there is some – you know, if I was looking for civil actions, there might be some civil action where I might have to go court by court. But, you know, people don't usually sue WWE on that low level. And you can see some of the other cases that have happened here in Connecticut uh, with WWE. Um, Like, Stephanie McMahon kind of had a stalker. and so, Oh, really? Yeah, you can see a whole bunch of cases there of this uh, – uh, Cecilia Levy versus Stephanie McMahon and you'll see like six or seven cases there and and those have been really you know it's pretty clear that it's just someone harassing harassing mm-hmm. them very much, you know someone not in their right mind. Mm-hmm. And so the court's been throwing those out and I think they have a restraining order even against the person. There's the CM Punk case. There's a um, – there's WWE versus Axum Billiard Supplies, which was a company that was uh, you know supposed to make WWE billiard balls and I think didn't pay. Um, there's uh, the, the original Raven versus WWE case, uh, the independent contractor one from a number of years ago. Uh, there's Digital Blue, which I think was a, a company that was maybe hired to do like a, a website refresh for WWE, and I think they got into an argument over payments. There's a, um, a staffing argument where um, – actually, one of the cases I actually went much larger, and I think it might have started off here, though. It was a woman who basically uh, complained that her supervisor was harassing her like by text, and it was this whole case about sexual harassment in the workplace and then firing the person and then uh, – firing both the employee and the supervisor and then kind of arguments about whether or not you can be p- fired for performance-related behavior if you're – supervisor was also sexually harassing you this is and in if, wwe yeah and Ooh. if maybe you um if maybe you you did at some point i don't know there, there might have been there might have been a relationship there or not at one point i'm not even sure but there, course, there's, that there's sounds been, consistent with things i've read on Glassdoor. yeah so there's there's stuff like that where there's mm-hmm. and again this is people that work in wwe headquarters this is not Wrestlers usually suing them though. Some of these are wrestlers that I'm mentioning here But a lot more of these cases are about the routine business, you know I'm a staffing agency You hired someone that I gave you a referral for and you didn't give me the amount of money that was guaranteed on the contract for me to Get as a percentage of their starting fee.
2: Yeah, and so you're right in here that it, it looks like Samantha Rotunda will probably be given 1099s and Bray's booking contract Which WWE themselves said they will probably supply. Yeah. But do you think we'll ever see those things released to the public as a result of this litigation? I don't know. You know, it's possible if it's
1: filed in such a way that they forget to redact it or if they forget to – uh, uh, if they make a reference to it, you know, and then they try to seal it and then it's sealed, it might go away. But there's always that possibility before it gets sealed, it would be there. WWE is really, really, really
2: good now about s- filing sealed documents. Yeah. Um, or, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that there's people like you and Bix lurking around? Yes.
1: Yes. I think I think they – they I think, A, they – no, but I would say more than that. Do you, don't you think everyone else in WWE wants to see what Bray Wyatt makes? Right. It would be – Of
2: interest to the rest of the workers.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to know what Brock Lesnar makes. It's one thing to know what John Cena makes. But if you're Bray Wyatt, there's a good argument if you're Nakamura and you see what Bray Wyatt makes, you might argue I'm worth more than him. Mm -hmm. There's a good argument if you are – I guess you could argue, well, Bray Wyatt's been around for
2: X number of years and Nakamura, you've only been around for a year or two.
1: Sure, absolutely. But if you're AJ Styles, if you're – you know, if you're Cesaro – You might want to argue, hey, I should be paid an equivalent of this. And so I think there is a large interest from people. And you know what? When these um, divorce documents come out, there's a possibility we'll see some information. When Randy Orton's came out, there was an amount of money that basically equivalent to, I think, $3.5 million uh, that it said was his monthly salary. And that's part of the reason that this case is happening is I think in the past some wrestlers have been able to sometimes establish an artificially low salary um, for what they're being paid. Either by saying here's my downside guarantee, this is, you know, how much they owe me, which, you know, for a lot of these guys might be a million bucks.
2: Or less than a, I mean a lot less than a million bucks for a lot of these guys. And but, because they're independent contractors, they are having to pay all of their travel expenses. Well, their their hotel expenses, they don't have to pay for flights, but they have to pay rental car fees and uh yeah, yeah. And hotels and food and things like that. But my point being they, they can basically
1: say, Well, here's my booking contract, it says I make no more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. And that's not true. It's saying I make at least two fifty a year plus you know, what I really make. None of these guys on the main roster are making downside guarantees. They're making what they're really making. And so part of it is that she's saying it's hard for me to prove what well, my they're, husband They're made. not just making downside
2: guarantees. Yes. yes. They're, they're getting fees every time they work a show, a TV, whatever it is.
1: Yes, and then on top of that, it's tough to say because you also have to establish earning potential. I believe in a lot of divorce cases, we have to say this is how much I think this person's going to make in the next few years, and also what is their revenue right now, and to say what is what is indicative. You know, is it today's revenue that's indicative, or is it you know when he was in in um uh Florida, you know, championship wrestling, FCW? Is it really fair to count that as what he is? Because now he's going to be making this for the next couple years, you know, that sort of thing. So, I think a lot of this is just around trying to establish. And you got to admit, it's tough to understand how all those streams of revenue might affect someone because they might have a merchandise agreement that's different than what their booking contract is. And, you know, a lot of these revenues might be delayed long periods of time. You know, the video game royalties when they come in, they only come in once a year, and that could be, you know, a well, I shouldn't say they come in once a year, but usually we see them hit the WWE profit line only once a year. Then they're paid out to the guys. But uh, that sort of idea just being that – I think she's, I think it makes sense why they're doing it. I, I feel really bad that putting this case together – I, I got to tell you, I really struggled with whether to write this story because I don't want to see a person with small children who's in the middle of divorce – their name plastered on the front of wrestling media yeah like you know some some people put up pictures of her and stuff like that and i was like that's not relevant like she is not a public figure in that sense you know she she's someone who very publicly here has been um put in a terrible situation because of course what was coming out was about you know rumors of an affair and
2: this and that and And wrestling media and wrestling fans can be very rabid and the comments yeah. can often be not so nice to say. Yeah, like.
1: and, and, and the other part of it being that, you know, it's about divorce and people are very passionate about uh, what they see as in, in injustices they see in the child support, alimony and divorce court. And so a lot of this is people, you know, really rip, coming up with these amazingly uh, intricate storylines of what they think this person is owed in her life in this situation based on who knows what and what is fair and not fair. And I think it's just like really out there. So I brought up, I just want to make it clear why I, why I wrote this piece. And it was because I thought it was interesting to see WWE again, avoiding a lawsuit or I'm sorry, avoiding complying with a subpoena and the sky high subpoena compliance costs that they were giving and that they were using very similar sky high subpoena compliance costs as they did in the punk lawsuit. And if you think I, about, I did not I, want to, but I and I just wanted to say what all the information it just proves to you that it is tough sometimes to understand how much a wrestler is making because even there's
2: no one document that might clearly illustrate that mm-hmm. today's world. And if you think about the the promo that Vince McMahon did when he was with Kevin Owens, and obviously a, a promo is just a promo, but I you know this reminds me of that line that he says in there is that, that the system is made to benefit people like me and not people like you. It's meant meant to benefit large corporations and not uh, more more vulnerable individuals. And that does seem you know, to have some truth to the subject that we're talking about here. It does look like they're just trying to intimidate people who have fewer resources than they do. I linked to our Vince McMahon uh, promos
1: episode as part of my uh, article that went live. And uh, I do see a little spike that happened on that day. And I, I, I just pointed out that, you know, Vince McMahon said in that promo, hey, I've never lost a lawsuit. And at the very end of my article about this piece, I just kind of pointed out, well, you do have the Jesse Ventura royalties case. They lost the Charles Austin injury suit. They lost the trademark case over the letters WWF in international court, specifically in the UK against uh, the World Wildlife Th- Foundation. They lost. So, I mean, they, they 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 have to comply with these in the end. And the fact that, you know, it's going into court here just says that, Her lawyer is very serious about this. Oddly enough, Bray doesn't seem to have a lawyer listed on the Florida proceedings, which really surprised me. And that was actually something the first thing when I did ask a divorce lawyer or a lawyer about this from Florida. That was the first thing they said to me is it's weird that the respondent here doesn't seem to have somebody listed. So I don't know if that's a sign that, you know, maybe they're trying to reconcile or whatever it is. But it's uh, that was just interesting to me. So I'm going to keep following this from the standpoint of. For subpoena compliance costs, I'm very curious to see how WWE deals. And, of course, I'm interested in a whole in contracts with WWE, and there is a possibility that Bray's contract or a, a version of Bray's information will come out, You know, be it not the contract, but he earned approximately X dollars in this year. I think that will be very interesting to us because I think Bray Wyatt is a very good example of someone who is that tier two guy. He's not the, the man, but he is treated as a very top tier guy. And there's a lot of other people that are probably scrambling for that spot. And if we're trying to establish how much does a guy like that make, he's probably a really good example of a person to look for.
2: I think the most interesting issue here is, again, that this points to a larger injustice in the legal system and that. If you try to get involved in a litigation with a larger entity, who this is, a, in this case, it's a billion dollar corporation in WWE, they have way more resources than you do and they will they have a lot of ways that they can evade and intimidate you from getting what you want. Um, even if you maybe have a legal right to get it, it looks like Peter Thiel and, and Hulk Hogan, you know, funding Hulk Hogan's suit against Gawker. But. I, I, I take a little less of
1: a hard line stance on it. I think there is a large compliance challenge that you have when you're being served with this because you're a major many billion dollar corporation and you're trying – you're being asked to search through all your records for information. That's tough because it's tough to prove a negative, Right. It's easy to say here's Bray's brooking contract, but it's very tough to say I have no evidence that Bray has a safety deposit box. Yeah. Because to do that, you have to search through all your records. So there is a compliance cost in doing this. And I think WWE, what they basically came back with was, we think there's some reasonable things for you to ask for. Because she, Bray Wyatt, by far, is hardly the first wrestler to be divorced while working for WWE. John Cena did it. Randy Orton did it. A lot of other
2: you know people have done it quietly, and we've never heard about it. Um, but I mean, let's say if, if Wyndham Rotunda was the co-owner of Joe's Sandwich Shop down the street... There wouldn't be as many barriers to getting the information that she's trying to get, right? But what probably happens is that
1: Wyndham Rotunda is not listed as the owner. He sets up an LLC. That LLC then goes and registers this. And if you don't know about the existence of that LLC, you're in trouble. And so I think the theory is that we can you know, follow the money by finding – like when you look at some of these contracts I have uncovered, like Brock. Brock Lesnar actually didn't sign the booking contract. Well, he did, but it, it was signed with his LLC. Same with Perry Saturn, same with, I think, Scott Steiner. They would sign contracts with their limited liability companies that were the ones that were getting paid rather than the wrestlers. And I think it was a tax scheme, to be really honest, is that it's a way of, you know, kind of moving the money around in such a way that you can deal with it. But you can also imagine there are cases where that doesn't make a clean trail between Social Security number XYZ and wrestler. So th- that's what you're looking for in a divorce thing. I'm sure this is the standard template that they use. It's just that they ran into a company that very much uh, has no qualms about throwing the brakes on. And I made kind of a, a glib comment on the Voices of Wrestling Twitter where I said, you know, they're, they're spending $250,000 to protect Bray. That's not true. I, I don't think they're necessarily taking sides and trying to protect Bray because I think they're trying to comply with this. But at the same time, they're trying to
2: slow the roll for sure. You think this will have any we'll see any uh any evidence of Bray being treated differently in the booking because of this?
1: You know, I think we will see people
2: infer that Bray is being treated differently in the booking yeah. because
1: of this. I think if I had uh had never broke this story and it never came out and and then I told you about it, nobody would have just suddenly said, What happened to Bray Wyatt? Why is this going on with him? You know. I do think um I do think he's having a bad year. <laughs> I think not only is his feuds been kind of stuck, but I think, you know, I imagine personally he's having a really bad year and this is not a great, great time for him in general. And so it's interesting to see that the company doesn't seem to be saying, hey, go work out your problems and you're off television. He's still a big star and they're still using him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the other lawsuit update I'll just give is is on the Bagwell Levy royalties case was interesting. They, they filed a joint status update, which is basically where both sides agree to what they agree on. And one of the things that came on, which I thought was interesting, was they're saying that there's 253 performers who entered into a booking contracts containing the other technology clause between August 1996 and April 2004. So over that you know nine year period maybe eight-year period really because it's just August to April. Um, They're basically saying there's about 250 people that in theory could be in one of these classes that would be eligible for the royalties. And again, this is going back to my discussion about how limited some of this royalty stuff is that it's really for people that have certain contracts that were not then superseded by other contracts. And even that 253, I think a lot of them, they say, were superseded by other contracts. And so, of course, Bagwell Levy's team right now is trying to get that list of 253 people because to them that's 253 potential plaintiffs and wwe is very much trying to kind of keep it away from that discussion saying you you're not asking for them i've given you examples of their contracts that's all you really deserve to have i'm not going to tell you how much these people earned or whatnot but uh i I found that just really interesting and pwi actually did a little piece on that which i thought was nice uh to see someone else covering this pw larger. Sorry, PW Insider, yes. Is PWI and PW Insider
2: different? Yes, of course. Well, when I hear somebody yeah. say PWI, I think Pro Wrestling Illustrated, but it's the You 50. think of being Mr. 486 or whatever? Exactly. It's the same initials. So. Um, so are they trying to get, do you think, these 253 performers to join in with them on the lawsuit? I think they want the names. I think they
1: want data, and I think WWE is going to be really reluctant to give it. Um, I think it's just interesting to me that, you know, I could go out there and start trying to guess. See if I could come up with a list of 253 people that sort of had WWE contracts during that time. Yeah. And to see – the challenge will be – I'm guessing they mean pure WWE contracts and they don't mean any WCW contracts. But I could be wrong. That will be the, – that's the challenge with all of this is that obviously – WWE has great records of them. WCW signed a lot of people. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the, the discrimination lawsuit proved that. I have I have payroll records for hundreds of people from the discrimination lawsuit. And so uh, I, I'm just not clear. I would have to go back and read that joint status update to see whether or not it's only WWF performers from that time or whether this would include people like, um, I think his name was Jacob Straussis, who was like a, a guy with like the largest arms in the world that WCW signed for a short period of time. And he never wrestled, but, you know, he was part of the power plant. And, like, just as an example of a guy who had a contract, um, whether or not it would have
2: this other technology claim, we don't know. But for WCW contracts to be included in this 253 count, WCW would have had to have just happened to use the same language, other technology. But they did argue, because Buff Bagwell gave some examples of his WCW
1: merchandising contract, and basically said... The, my WCW merchandising contract, which when you signed me to my WWE contract you said would not be infringed on, that has some language that applies to this case. So that that's their argument is that the merchandise contract. But yeah, the other technology one was in WWF's hands, though I've looked at the contracts because we see some. Ice Train's contract came out, um, Hardberry Hardbody Harrison's contract came out, a bunch of the Power Plant guys came out. Um, Hulk Hogan's contract came out and a lot of the language is very similar between the two I found, but not all exactly the same, but yeah, I'm guessing this is WWF guys. So it's just questions like, did Mrs. Yamaguchi-san, uh, did she have a WWF booking contracts? Did Heroku, uh, the wife of Kenzo Suzuki, did she have a contract? You know, like really obscure people. Well, she was appearing on TV regularly. You got to have that person a contract, right? Uh, it's the wife of another person, though. Sometimes they get really loose with that stuff. But sometimes they just do like per
2: appearance stuff.
1: You know, like the way they treat a yeah. Jobber, where they just say, "Here's the sort of bucks. the way they
2: eventually signed James Ellsworth and Colin Delaney."
1: Yeah, exactly. That's my point. Is like a lot of those people. I doubt they were touring on the road. And so I don't know if they would have bothered to sign them to a booking contract if they're the husband or wife or a model at you know, like like Rusev's lawyer did not get a WWE booking contract. He got a payday for one
2: day. Mm-hmm. So but that's not a recurring character, but
1: yeah, no. Anyway. But uh but that, that was my thought. And then um the the last one I wanted to give as an update was just uh Titus and Donald Anderson. That's the the swerved jackass Lawsuit. I always call it jackass lawsuit, even though it's not jackass, but it was the director of jackass, um, about the, the kettle prod. And basically, Titus right now is moving to try to move this um, lawsuit, basically get it dismissed or get it changed. Because he says, why is it filed in California court? Um, the injury happened in Virginia. I live in Florida. WWE's in Connecticut. Just this guy happens to live in California but he wasn't even injured in California when it happened. So basically he's arguing that the lack of personal jurisdiction and or proper venue is a reason you should dismiss the case. So I, I thought that was an interesting little thing. Like I said before, uh, the case went federal. I like that because it's much easier to get the records and it's much cheaper. So I'll continue following that. Let's talk about WWN.
2: The last time we, st- we were talking about it, the, uh, I think we had not quite seen the email news right that was before all that but w- but flow slam had decided to stop airing evolve that weekend yeah we
1: had we had talked about how we thought that wwn live was gonna have to take over airing the evolve shows because the evolve shows were definitely not gonna be on flow slam even though at the time i looked up flow slams website and talked all about evolve being there um i've in fact even heard at one
2: point like maybe all the archives were free for for a short time evolve aired Evolve uh, 92 and 93 on their own, WNlive.com website is where they used to put their iPay pay-per-views before they were on FlowSlam. Slam, so they made a big hurry to get those on WN so people could, uh, could order them, uh, but we talked a little about that last week, but uh, what we also learned since we talked last was that uh, in a report from Sean Radican, he says that WN hasn't been paid by Flow Sports since July. That's consistent with some things we've heard, or speculation that we've heard others say about how Flow Sports is just trying to get out of this contract. with them.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's the one thing that I I've, I've been trying to understand is is this a Flow Slam doesn't want to pay money to to WWN anymore? That's scenario one. Scenario two is we've been damaged, you owe us money, we're gonna bankrupt you and own WWN. That's scenario two, and like scenario three is just like I want some of my money back and I just don't want to do this anymore. Let's cancel this relationship. You know, kind of find find some middle ground maybe, a, a settlement and maybe even renegotiate and continue on. I could even see that.
2: Yeah, I would guess their view, Sports' view, is that you misrepresented to us what your data was so why should we keep paying you? Our agreement to pay you is based on information that you gave us. We feel that you gave us wrong information, which maybe that's about the time that they came to that conclusion maybe July or so. I Although, I would think it's even oh my god, I don't want to pay this contract escalation fee. Right. We got to get eat, out of this 5-year deal. This How do slam. I get out of this deal?
1: Let's get them to prove uh their number. Well, why did we pay them so much? Well, they gave us these numbers. Well, did we see the verification of those numbers? Uh, let's get them to send it to us. And then from that that became an opening. I I I I very much challenged the idea that somehow When they discovered these numbers were fake, they needed to kill the contract. I kind of feel like they were already in the process of trying to justify why they could kill this contract, which goes towards the July we wanted to stop paying you type idea. It's kind of saying, oh, my God, this is not working out. I do wonder if there was a contract escalation where it was annual and it's like year one, we pay this. Year two, you pay this. And suddenly you're like, oh, my God, I got to get out of this contract before I hit this escalation.
2: Yeah, and I, I strongly suspect that that is
1: the case. The question to me is, are they actually trying to get damages? Are they actually trying to get money back? Are they actually trying to get something? Or would they just be content with ripping up the contract and walking away? Um, one lawyer – let me just read what a lawyer said about this case. Um, a, a guy on, on Twitter, he, he said this publicly, so I'm just going to – And and he was not acting in a lawyerly fashion. He was acting as someone who is familiar with the legal profession. Let's put it that way. He said, having read this complaint, a few things I take away. One, the complaint is likely to be dismissed and refiled in federal court, which means either Flo isn't serious about this or they've hired attorneys with no concept of personal and subject matter jurisdiction, if at all. It's unlikely WWN would accept the jurisdiction of the Texas court. Two, the breach of contract claims cites bits and pieces of the contract, but doesn't cite chapter and verse. No copy of the contract was provided. That's not uncommon, but it's interesting. And three, the claim of negligent misrepresentation is well below the claims that were, that there was a fraud claim. So while it's a civil wrong, those who have been pushing this as WWN purposely trying to screw over flow might want to review those claims. So what I take away from, from his very insightful and very legal-filled jargon is one, um, this is a lawsuit between two companies in different states, right? We had Florida, uh, yeah, w- WNN, and we in Texas. And, yeah. and so part of he's saying is I'm surprised this isn't in federal court. It's over a million dollars. It's people in different states. I'm sure when they signed the contract, it said the laws of Texas will prevail. But still, I think you can elevate that to the federal court of Texas. So there's that. Number two, he's saying basically, you know, you didn't explain your claim by giving us an example of where they violated their contract. And I'm sure it's just a here's our initial volley and, you know, we're scaring you and whatnot. And we can file this stuff in the future. But he was saying that it, he's surprised that they didn't include that as an exhibit, even as a sealed exhibit, because you can file contracts and just make them sealed, saying it's proprietary information if the judge agrees. And then number three. He's just making the, the point that it's very – what the legal, the legal bias to say negligent misrepresentation, i.e. lying to us about numbers, is very different than fraud. And, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was questioning whether or not these lawyers were really up to snuff for exactly what they were saying for this kind of contract piece here. Um, and I would not be surprised if both sides are maybe not coming in with the, the Jerry McDivitts of the world at this time. Uh, beyond for what they're fighting because it is a very complicated uh, contract issue that they're fighting it out. And I'm, you know, if you read flow sports, flow slam, I've said before, they have a lot of complaints against them for their activity that they've done around how they bill people and change prices, A a lot
2: of customer complaints,
1: a lot of customer complaints. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is a company that has a high risk tolerance, as we say in business sometimes, meaning, um, Something is not always right or wrong, but a lot of times it's just how much risk tolerance are you willing to take. And they seem like a company that might have a lot of risk tolerance about like, you know, we'll just deal with these people one-off rather than make a more general policy that's more pleasing to everyone. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they just have lawyers that, you know, either aren't able to rein them in always or aren't always being even consulted on all these decision-making makes, uh, situations. So. You know, we've seen a lot of.
2: If this isn't fraud, like, then what's the threshold at which it becomes fraud?
1: We'd have to get a lawyer on here to say what the definition of fraud is that you need to prove in a court is, because I think that's what it gets.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership.